You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Yeah, welcome back to Herd Tell. She's one of our favorites, but she's been busy and we haven't had her on. That's my fault. Now she's back. Brooke Medina, she's the VP of comms for John Locke in North Carolina. Real good friend. We go way back to when I first started doing this stuff. She was crazy enough to put me on one of their podcasts and look where that went. So those of you in my comments who always want to know who to blame, here they be. Brooke Medina, thanks for being back. How are you? I'm great. And I feel like with that sort of intro and setup, this actually means you owe me some royalties for being on her tell now and having this podcast launch and far exceeding anything we ever talked about or did on Civa Talk, my old podcast with Ray. Yeah, I, I need to add, I hadn't talked to Ray in a way. I need to reach out to him yet. I'll give you I'll give you 20% of my dollar 45 from Medium this month. Um we'll hook Take that it. up. <laughs> uh you mentioned Civitas. They still call it the Civitas poll. Let's talk about that. We we're getting into an area here now where the Democrats have even come up with a motto for it. it's actually pretty good branding. They're talking about five to flip five Senate races. They think they've got a good look at polling. Looks like they got a good look at it. And to a lot of folks surprise, North Carolina is one of them. Y'all did the polling. They're on to something here. What did your polling show in the North Carolina Senate race? Yeah, I mean, this is either Ted Budd or Sherry Beasley's race to lose at this juncture. Our polling found that they are in a dead heat. It's 42.3% on both sides. And so this is something that is, the gap is closing. So if you're on the Budd campaign or if you're Ted Budd himself, uh, you're feeling a little bit more nervous about this. So we pulled this back in June as well. And in June, there was certainly a sizable gap. I believe Bud was about 5% ahead of Beasley on that front. Uh, but that gap has certainly closed since June. Of course, nothing has happened in the news since June, right? Senate is completely inconsequential. Um, I say that in tongue in cheek. This is really, uh, this is going to be a very, very tight race. And this is uh, going to be a intense battle going into the election season. Now, the interesting number that actually popped off to me here, besides that virtual tie and in the margin of error, of course, these are two people who have good rec name recognition inside the state of North Carolina. Sherry Beasley, of course, was a Supreme Court justice. For folks outside of North Carolina, uh, her leaving the Supreme Court, that was a messy big news story the Supreme Court flipped. So it, most people know who she is. Of course, Ted Budd was a sitting representative. And he won his primary. We'll get to that in just a minute. But even with all that name recognition, even with this being a very hotly contested race, your polling shows there's still 12 percent undecided. That's a high, high number for getting into the end of August here. It is. But I think that it really speaks to 
the political disenchantment of many North Carolina voters. We have, as our largest voting block, unaffiliated voters. So these are voters like myself who oftentimes it's, we're kind of we don't want to affiliate so directly with the political party, despite the fact of holding very, very clear and very principled views oftentimes on politics and and policy. But these are voters who are just like, you know what, I'm not super excited about either candidate right now or there's just a big question mark. And I'm waiting to see how the economy uh, pans out to see what else is going to unveil itself between now and November. And so I agree, though, this is a really high number of undecideds. Um, so it'll be interesting as we pull this again next month as well as October and see how things shape out. But this is going to be a very, very expensive race. Um, the Bud team, I would say, has definitely dragged their feet when it comes to advertising, especially on cable news. Uh, we see Sherry Beasley ads all the time. Um, she seems very competent, very centrist is how she's presenting herself, despite the fact that she has a history and record on the Supreme Court, as well as other courts, that I would say North Carolinians are wise to look into and examine and decide for themselves whether or not she's as centrist as she posits herself. Um, Chad Adams, who's a longtime radio host, he partners with us on Big Talker. I thought he had one of the most prescient things on this race. And this was a couple of weeks ago before this started moving, even when the Ted Budd first won his primary. He said, and you can break this down for folks who don't understand this reverence. He said, watch out for Beasley because she's going to run the Kay Hagan playbook. And that's pretty much what it looks like it's happened for folks that don't understand that reverence. Of course, the late Kay Hagan, unfortunately, she caught encephalitis of all things and passed away a few years ago. She was the senator in North Carolina. She took out uh, Elizabeth Dole, surprising a lot of people, part of the Obama wave in 08. And she ran as a centrist, but then she voted pretty along the lines, Democrat, rather liberal. But she was able to maintain her seat by running as a moderate. Sherry Beasley, of course, is a Democrat. She's mainline towards liberal Democrat on most of her policies, but that's what she's running ads on being a centrist. She's running ads on bipartisanship. She's running ads. She's skewing the cultural issues, going to kind of meat and potatoes, jobs, stuff you would expect from a Democratic candidate. It looks like it's working. Yeah. Oh, it certainly is. And this is something that when Hagan and Tillis, I believe, ran against each other, um, she wasn't showing up to debates. Tillis was, and this is almost like the inverse. Sherry Beasley or Sherry Beasley just agreed to do a debate uh, with the National Broadcasters Association, and Bud is silent. Uh, the John Locke Foundation hosted its own debate with Carolina Journal during the GOP primary, and Bud didn't show up. He has refused to show up at many of these, so it's almost like the flip. Um, but Sheree, Sherry Beasley is getting the opportunity to continue to throw herself out there as someone who is very reasonable, um, not someone who is like the typical D.C. politician that we're disenchanted with right now. So it'll be interesting to see if voters buy into that or if the Bud team ramps up their opposition, starts digging up some dirt, um, becomes a little bit more aggressive. But for right now, the only campaign ad that I've seen on the Bud side, despite a lot of club for growth PAC money, is one of a grocery store and a little girl in a grocery store. So we'll see what happens.
Yeah, let's talk about Bud for a second because you mentioned it. Uh, Brooke Medina joining us from John Locke. During the primary, that was the knock. He didn't show up for the debates. He didn't do anything. I interviewed him for radio. I asked him directly. I was like, what what are you making of this? He goes, we've got our data. We know our numbers. We're going to all 55 counties. We're going to talk to everybody. We know what we're doing. We're going to win this thing. He was right. I was wrong. He won his primary very handily, quite frankly. And it worked for him. He rode the Trump endorsement. The Club for Growth ads were absolutely everywhere. And he won. So I was wrong. He was right. However, maybe I was just a little too quick for it because he's doing the same thing, it seems like, in the general election. And the general election is not the same beast. He has the Donald Trump endorsement, but Donald Trump is not on this ticket. He's not going to be on the ballot to help buoy him, even though it, it was a Democratic or a Trump state in 2020. I think he's making a mistake here. He's not engaging. He's laying low. I know the learned behavior is it worked for him in the primaries. I think he's making a mistake here. I think you're absolutely right because even the Club for Growth ads, I haven't been seeing the ads like I did in the primaries all of a sudden lately. Maybe they're holding it, but I'm watching these poll numbers move around. You can only lose so much ground. You need to do something proactive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. It's like, it did pan out for him, despite the fact that many of us were skeptical during the primaries that that would be a good strategy for him. Yep. And we were wrong. It clearly it, it ended up being the strategy that he needed for a Republican primary. Uh, it is interesting that Club for Growth was so aggressive and spent so much during the primary. Uh, but yet it seems like more crickets at this juncture. But again, this is the end of August. It's not September or October yet. So maybe they're saving their war chest for later. We'll see what happens. But right now, if I was an advisor on that campaign, I'm certainly wondering, okay, let's actually get you out in front. Um, Let's get you ahead of these issues. This is, for many analysts, a lot of people believe this is the Republicans' midterm to lose. Um, But I think too many people sometimes take things for granted on the political front, which nothing should ever, ever be taken for granted when it comes to the electorate. Yeah. And Senate races are very different cyclically than the House races, which we know the cycle for those. Uh, This is not unusual if you go through American history that the Senate and the House split off a little bit on the political cycles. There was other stuff in the Civitas poll I wanted to ask you about real quick, though. Obviously, the number one issue on everybody's mind is the economy. There's some interesting nuggets in here about the economy, wasn't there, especially when it comes. Now, we know oil and gas prices, you know, almost 87 percent. Trying to get 90 percent of anybody on any polling ever is really hard to do. You managed to do it here. That's pretty remarkable. But some of the other stuff on here was very interesting. Talk about some of the other issues polled here, because those are going to play very heavily into these election cycles, aren't they? Yeah, they certainly are. The economy is always going to be the number one driver when it comes to elections uh, here in the United States. Um, despite the fact that we've seen the Roe versus Wade or the Dobbs decision and Roe v. Wade overturned or remanded back to the states, that will certainly be a key issue for certain voters. But at the end of the day, most people want to be able to provide for their families. They don't want to see government continue to take, 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 and their grocery prices and their energy bills go up, up, up. Um, One thing before talking about the economy is the fact that Joe Biden's approval numbers went from terribly, awfully bad to just awfully bad. And so he's still underwater. It's still, I believe he's 17 points underwater, uh, but it wasn't as bad as it was before. So I think that's reflective of the fact that inflation was, uh, is not going or is not continuing to spiral this month. It hasn't gotten better, but it hasn't gotten worse either. Energy prices in terms of oil and gas, 
those are, um, they're starting to either recede a little bit or just staying neutral. And so those are things that voters are, they're, they're still imminently important to them, but it's not as painful as it was the past few months, especially in June. So um, one of the questions we asked was, do you believe that we are in a recession? So 66% uh, said they agree that we are in a recession despite the White House's protestations that we are not. Um, that's the perception among likely North Carolina voters. We're in a recession. 19% said they disagreed with that. They don't think we're in a recession, but 10% weren't sure. They just didn't know either way. So they were certainly persuadable. But then another question that I think is really telling and concerning is how worried about are you about losing your job over the next 12 months? 25% said they're worried. 66% said they are not worried. So despite the fact that many are concerned about a recession, they think we're in a recession, they themselves think that their jobs are fairly secure. And I would say that's in part because of the tight labor market. Yeah, Brooke Medina joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. There's a couple more items on this polling data, stuff that's not getting talked about right now, but things that are showing up on ballots like Medicaid expansion, like abortion. We're going to talk about that. Also, she's got a story uh, about eminent domain that's absolutely going to grind your teeth if you care anything at all about liberty and due process. We're going to talk about that with her more with the great Brooke Medina on her tell right after this. Uh, we're back on Hertel, having a great conversation with our friend Brooke Medina, returning to Hertel after too long of an absence. Um, I want to talk about this in the last two items in this Civitas poll. Here's something that I found really interesting. It's not getting a lot of play right now, but once the, we get through the election year and we, we start doing some legislating again, this is going to come back up. Medicaid expansion has been a big ticket item. It's been going state to state. It passes almost every time it comes up in a state, whether it's a red state or blue state, interestingly or not. It's one of those phenomenons. But your polling has an interesting data point here. 50% disapproved of executive orders to expand Medicaid dollars to be used to pay out of state, especially when it comes to things like abortion, especially when it comes to things like health care. I think the, the thing here is very clear that voters are okay with doing this themselves when it comes up on a ballot. They don't like executive orders on stuff like this. And especially when it comes to something like an abortion thing, something like that. I thought that was a really interesting data point that kind of runs counter to the electoral stuff. But when you look at it, people want to say in that they just don't want to be in pen and ink. Yeah, I think that this what this shows in in the polling is that the North Carolina electorate is actually somewhat pro choice to some degree. Only 7% of those that we polled actually said that they believe abortion should be illegal in every circumstance. Otherwise, it was to degree. Um, only 20, 22% thought that abortion should be le legal under every circumstance. So that shows first off how the North Carolina electorate is divided on this issue. And it's certainly just not strictly pro-life versus pro-choice. It's on a spectrum. And that shows up in the Medicaid expansion question or the Medicaid question as far as should North Carolinians be paying for abortions? And that's an entirely different story. So someone might say they are very pro-choice. 
um, or at least to a degree, but they still don't believe that the taxpayer should be the one footing that bill of such a highly contentious, highly political issue. I'd be curious also to see with our next poll, if we ask them a similar question about student loan forgiveness or debt cancellation and see how they feel about that. Um, I, there are a lot of programs or theories or ideas that voters will support in theory, but it's an entirely different story sometimes when it boils down to whether or not they will be paying for that particular issue. So, Yeah, and you're based out of the Raleigh-Durham area. That's a big college area, of course. You got the big three up there, Duke, North Carolina, and NC State. What's the talk around there? Because this 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 is an area that has a one of the highest educational rates in all the country. It's well known for its university system. You know, you do comms, so you're paying attention to the news feed. You're watching the timelines. You're talking to people. What's been the reaction to that? Because you're in an area where that's a probably more of an issue than maybe in some other places. Of course, also a big tech area now, so a lot of higher end educated folks, a higher educated workforce. What's what's folks saying? What's your read on that now that we've got a couple of days in on it? On the student debt cancellation, um, it's interesting. I would say that there are so many beneficiaries of that debt cancellation. I believe about 75 million Americans out of 330. So this is definitely impacting a sizable portion of the population, impacting in a good way. It's benefiting them. Um, so overall, I would say it's very, very split. There are those people who would say, I'm benefiting from this personally, but in terms of fiscal conservatism and my principles on that, I disagree with this. Granted, Raleigh-Durham area is not brimming with fiscal conservatives whatsoever. It's definitely academics that lean left. So many of them are celebrating this. They think that this is, or they will say publicly that this is a justice issue, or this is the way in which we are definitely hurt, helping the um, lower income Americans that have taken out college debt. Uh, but it's so much more nuanced than that. And so I will be curious to see if we pull it next month, what the crosstabs say and how this breaks up, breaks down into Democrats versus Republicans versus unaffiliated, where they stand on this particular issue. Um, but one of the things I would advise people is it's one thing to support this in theory because you believe that uh, it is it is a way to help the American public become more educated without saddling them with debt at the outset of their careers. But it's another thing to actually have to figure out the way to pay for this. It's going to be exceedingly expensive. And there will be blue collar American workers who chose not to go to college. One of them I've cited on Twitter before was my is my father-in-law. He was an immigrant blue collar worker, works hotel security down in Florida. Um, He's going to be one of the type of people that pays for this for a young attorney couple who's making $249,000 a year. So it just, there's some, um, there are some messaging issues that the White House is trying to get out in front of on this and create a narrative that this is just about really helping those desperate needy college students. And in some cases that will be, um, but in other cases, it's certainly not. And it's going to have an impact um, far more than just the wealthiest or the corporations. It's going to directly impact the taxes of those that are definitely maybe more of the bottom 30 percent. Yeah, if you poll it, we'll definitely want to talk about it because I'm, I'm kind of letting this breathe for a minute because I know what I think about it. 
but I think this is going to have to shake out a little bit because I'm seeing, I think fo- there's a, there's a lot of people that even support it that just don't like how this is being done. I know our, some of our progressive friends are really upset that it's only $10,000 uh, and 20,000 for the pale grants. We'll see how this one shakes out. One more last thing in the Civitas poll I wanted to ask you about. This is where polling data gets useful because it shows you just how splintered people are on an issue. We already talked about, you know, everybody said gas is an issue, you know, 87 percent. That's that's unheard of in polling to get anybody to agree to 87 percent on anything. But when you go to break it down, what to do about it? Thirty seven percent said the state should prioritize environment at the risk of high energy prices. Forty five percent said they should prioritize affordability and reliability in energy over carbon emissions. And then you got 17 percent that aren't sure, but because they probably just don't want to answer a sticky question. That's a hard bridge to gap. That's where this debate's going to be. It's where it's been for a long time. This is where it's going to be for a while because people like the idea of clean energy. They like the idea of being environmentally conscious. Even conservatives, you, you need to call it conservation instead of environmentalism, but they, you know, they want to take care of the earth too. But this is where the rubber meets the road, and there's a gap here that isn't going to get bridged anytime real soon, and the polling shows that, doesn't it? It does. Well, let's liken this to the abortion Medicaid question. It's one thing to agree with something or like it in theory. It's another to actually have to foot the bill for it. And same with the energy prices. Many people want to go green and I would say go nuclear then. Um, But they also realize, okay, my family is coming up on a winter. The elderly are coming up on possibly a difficult winter. We've seen rolling blackouts in California. We've seen what happened with Texas and their huge winter storm and the importance of energy reliability. We know what it costs to drive back and forth to work to the grocery store, to our kids' soccer games. So they are importing their real life experiences. Importing is not the right word there, but they're they're looking at their real life experiences. And it sounds nice to be very clean energy green, especially uh, the ways in which the, I would say, progressive left or environmentalists have said is the right way to be clean energy and uh, energy independent. Um, but in reality, many, many people are just hurting on this front and they're actually probably going to see energy costs rise by another 30 to 50%, depending on what the legislature and what Duke energy, for example, require, um, in their clean energy portfolio to satisfy what governor Roy Cooper has mandated, which is essentially a Paris climate agreement. He wants zero carbon emissions by, um, 2030. And so they're starting to develop a 50-year energy plan, and this is going to heavily rely on, unless people change course, unless the Utilities Commission changes course, this is going to heavily rely on wind and solar energy, which we know is not affordable and it's not reliable. And so this is a really big, uh, there's an, uh, a big iceberg under the surface with this particular issue that North Carolinians or anyone else that's just interested in this topic is wise to keep an eye on over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's not going away and it's going to get louder. And like you said, winter's coming. And if you've never been in Raleigh in wintertime, uh, there's two cities I've lived in, uh, Vegas when it rains and Raleigh when it snows, people lose their ever loving minds. It's absolute insanity. We're going to take one quick break. When we come back with Brooke Medina, we're going to talk about her piece on this eminent domain story. This is something that's personal to me. I love discussing this because it's something that's not discussed enough, how the government can do this when they should, when they should. And Brooke Medina continues with us right after this. 
Actually, wait two seconds because the garbage truck just pulled into the call the sack. All right, we're good. Dogs do not like the garbage truck. They find it offensive. <laughs> Welcome back to Herd Tell. That's Brooke Medina. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for sticking with us. Okay, you wrote about this eminent domain story out in Chatham County. I'm going to get my biases on the table. The house I grew up in was built because of eminent domain because they lived down in the uh, Golly River Valley. They came in, they dammed it up, they built Summersville Lake. We had to move back up on top of the mountain, up yonder. Um, and they've been there ever since. They built that house because of eminent domain. That's where my mom grew up. That's where I grew up. Eminent domain is a real thing. Now, it's a tool the government has to have. We understand that. But how they wield it, where they wield it, and who they wield it against tells us whether it's a good usage or a bad usage or an amoral usage or quite frankly, there's been some corrupt usages. We know uh, the history in the U.S. It's been used against minority groups. It's been used against the poor. This thing can get ugly in a hurry, and we're talking about taking people's homes, businesses, and livelihoods. I've read through your piece. I've read the auxiliary stuff on this Chatham County situation. You tell the story, but as far as I can tell, unless there's something I'm missing, this looks egregious, this looks outrageous, and this looks like an abuse of governmental power to me. What's your take on it? My take is amen. I think it's all of those things, uh, and it's heartbreaking. Uh, like you said, I'm not so, I'm not someone who doesn't think there is absolutely no place for eminent domain. Similar to there's, you know, I'm not someone who believes that there's no place for zoning. Uh, there are places, but the government has run roughshod over private property rights in favor of other politically favored private businesses to be able to set up shop. And that's an injustice that I think definitely and right, rightfully riles up many Americans. If we don't have private property rights, what do we really have? And I think too often there are so many conversations surrounding other types of rights that, you know, right to healthcare, right to education, stuff like that, where we forget some, one of the most fundamental rights is life and property. And I work at the John Locke Foundation and John Locke, the philosopher, was a huge proponent of property rights, beginning with the right to oneself as well as their actual property. And this is one of those cases here in North Carolina where I would say families like a woman named Lisa Stone, who's a Chatham County resident, as well as Jack Sanderson, another Chatham County resident. And they're, they're critically essential fundamental right to private property have been essentially cast aside by the government in order for a new startup company from Vietnam called VinFast to set up shop to create electric vehicles. So this actually uh, flows nicely from our previous energy conversation and discussions around being environmentally friendly. Um, so the government, particularly Governor Roy Cooper, has really celebrated bringing VinFast into North Carolina, so much so that we've given them a 32-year extension, essentially, to allow them to reside here in North Carolina and milk off the taxpayers for 32 years. We were giving them $1.25 billion. That's a division between state money as well as local money. Uh, that is money or tax incentives that are footed by the taxpayer. But to add insult to injury, are these Chatham County residents, 27 homes, five businesses, at least one church that are now going to be either torn down or uh, their properties receded a bit uh, to allow for some infrastructure, some roads to make their way into the VinFast manufacturing facility, which has not yet been built. 
Um, but these are people who have lived here in North Carolina, who have lived in their homes for from between 50 and 70 years in some cases, and they refused to sell their property. So the government exercised eminent domain law and has subsequently taken their property to make way for the startup company. Yeah, see, the, the startup company is the part of this that bothers me because this is an unproven company. This is, I mean, it'd be one thing if it was like Ford or even even as much as I can't stand them, Tesla or something, you know, something that's established. I guess it'd be one thing. This is an unproven startup company that we're giving a lot. Look, we're we're putting a we're putting a beltway around Fayetteville right now. So that it's going near the property I own. They spent years on that. They had meetings. They put out maps. They showed everybody like, look, we've put it, we've gone around as much housing as we can, but this this road has to go in certain places because it's got to link up to I-95. Like the road has to go here. So we're going to have to take certain houses, but we've avoid, I mean, they're curving it to get around a lot of the major neighborhoods. They did everything they could. They did their due diligence and now they're moving stuff and they had to tear some homes down and whatever. That's the process that this is supposed to be. I don't see that process here. And I don't see it for something that's going to have all kinds of economical advantages, like a four and four in some places, six lane highway that was badly needed to get around Fort Bragg, which is one of the biggest military installations, by the way, also for national security reasons, because they had to get the traffic away from Fort Bragg. That's a good use of eminent domain. I still don't like taking homes, but understandable. I see none of that process here. I see bright, shiny object that we can put on a bullet point and we can put on fundraising and we can put on a political resume. That's what this looks like to me. And the fact that this is an unproven private company makes it even worse in my eyes. Yeah, I, you're right. This There hasn't been due diligence conducted on this. I mean, I think it started in March or May is when it was it was approved in March, uh, the taxpayer handout to VinFast. And then they started, uh, they started a few meetings over the summertime. And now people, boom, people's properties are having to, uh, are subjected or they are the casualties of of this decision by the government. And again, like you said, this is an unproven company. Maybe VinFast does phenomenally well. We don't know yet. It is only just now starting to set up shop in California. They're making pre-orders for these electric vehicles, but we don't even know what the market demand is. We, we actually pulled this not too long ago, asking North Carolinians, do you own an electric vehicle? Only around two and a half percent even own an electric vehicle right now. And then we asked, well, do you plan on buying one? And this was during the height of gas prices. Only 12% said they even plan on buying one in the near future. So we don't really know what the market demand will be by the time the VinFast facility is uh, is created. Uh, but another component to this, I would say, this is an aside, but it's noteworthy, is that North Carolina electric vehicle makers can't even directly sell their vehicles here in North Carolina. So it's like, we're creating this. Um, we're creating this infrastructure on taxpayer dollars, taking people's homes and properties and businesses away from them. And a company that's only been around since 2017 in Vietnam and just now hitting U.S. shores. And we're doing all of these monumental, potentially cataclysmic decisions without really having conducting a really good cost-benefit analysis. It's scary. It's concerning. Um, but then when you think about the actual North Carolinians, it's impacting directly. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Sorry, my mouth stopped working for no explicable reason whatsoever. Yeah, it's heartbreaking because anytime you and you can read, um, we'll link to it. You link in your piece, the News and Observer. The quotes from these people are just heartbreaking. You can imagine they talk about, you know, they they didn't get a lot of notice on this. 
I hope it works because I hope it's worth it what they're doing to these people, but I'm skeptical. So we'll see how it plays out and we'll keep an eye on it. But when we talk about a big, just to put a bow on this, we talk about a big concept like government accountability. This is why you got to have government accountability because they can come in and take your house and then you got to fight them to not do it. And you're probably going to lose that fight. And uh, it's it's frustrating stuff. Thank you for writing this piece. We're going to link to it, like we always say. Make sure you read the whole piece. Make sure you read all the linked materials. Um, there's a uh, cameo from our friend Scott Linscom in there, too. You might want to check that out. Brooke Medina, I love talking to you. It's great to have you back. We'll have you on more frequently. We'll try to get you in the rotation more often, but you're so busy because you're popular and such. Uh, let folks know about all those busy things you do, where they can follow you, what you got going on with John Locke. And elsewhere, you're also a great writer in your own right. Let folks out know how they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Andrew. And I, it's a delight every single time. So yes, have me on more often. But uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm just Brooke underscore Medina underscore. Uh, but definitely, I encourage you to follow the work of our reporters and our researchers at the John Locke Foundation so you can find out more of what they're doing and the research they're doing to keep government accountable. And that's at johnlock.org as well as carolinajournal.com. We also have a special movie premiere. So if you're in the Raleigh area, we're actually going to be doing a movie screening called The Hong Konger. So if you believe in democracy, you believe that China is infringing upon the rights of those free citizens of Hong Kong, you'll be interested in this movie. It's at the Alamo Draft House on August 30th. And so if you go to johnlock.org and go to our event section, you can get tickets or shoot me a message. I'll give you a promo code so you can get a discount. But thank you guys so much for joining and listening. Yeah, do all those sorts of things. We're doing that, too, because we've got the Dissident Project with Young Voices. It's got um, Sarah Yeo and some other folks that are actually Hong Kongers talking about what's happened to that country. I got I actually have family members that have married into the family from Hong Kong. So it's something I keep a close eye on. Terrible for the you want to talk about eminent domain. That's eminent domain on steroids. What China's done to Hong yeah. Kong. Brooke Medina, you are fantastic. Thank you so much, my friend. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. back to her tell okay this is going to be fun uh not because of the subject matter which is serious and deep but because of who's talking about it a new guest which is always fun to have on the show a fresh face if you will another of our great young voices contributors leslie corbley joining us from out she usually she's in utah but she migrated over to the east coast temporarily how are you ma'am thank you for joining us i'm doing fan doing really well thank you so much for having me on I really appreciate it. Really appreciate you being on the East Coast so don't have to worry about the time change because that's the first thing I was worried about Uh, because I lived in Vegas and I still can't figure it out. Um, Let's talk a little bit about warrants. You've been writing about them. Let's start big picture and then we'll dig down on this. 
do we just need a different definition of warrant? Because I think the it's too big a term. It's too inclusive. And as we're rapidly finding out, and as you've been writing about in places like town hall and elsewhere, we we've got situations that the current laws on the books for warrants just never even envisioned when it comes to things like the geofencing, things like what is and isn't private information. Do you own your own name as we're seeing in things like college sports? I think the term warrant, we're going to need some different nomenclature somewhere in here just to get into this issue to start with, aren't we? Well, part of the problem really is that the Constitution has a, a specific definition of warrant. And I believe geofences, for example, are constitute general warrants. So there's a lack of particularity there. Um, there's no suspect, for instance, on the front end of those when those warrants are issued. They are essentially fishing expeditions where law enforcement is seeking a cache of data for the purpose of identifying a suspect rather than having a suspect in mind and issuing a warrant on the, um, you know, that's specific to that individual. So there's that that issue, which I would argue is most is outside of the realm of constitutional um, definition of a warrant. I think I would call that a general warrant, which is actually what the Fourth Amendment was designed to protect against. And then you do also have um the problem of scope of warrants in a digital context which is really what i was trying to touch on in that article um there's a lot of confusion about warrants out in the public right now <laughs> given some of the news stories coming out uh, i think some of that comes down frankly to ignorance on the part of the media um there's often conflating terms uh not being specific as to what you're discussing. And then, of course, there is the fact that constitutional jurisprudence as it relates to the Fourth Amendment has uh, evolved quite a bit over the past, uh, you know, 50 or so years. And so you have that kind of confusing factor as well. But as it relates to the digital warrant problem, the scope of warrants in a digital, digital context is that you don't have a physical space. Um, and I tried to touch on that in the article, you know, that in a physical space, you're to some degree bound by that, right? You walk into a home, you kind of know what the different rooms are for. If you're, I, I can't remember the exact um, example I gave in the article off the top of my head, but essentially if you're looking for a bike, you wouldn't look in a, a stolen bike, you wouldn't look in a desk drawer, right? I mean, you're kind of bound by that. In a digital context, you really don't have any of those typical barriers. And so no, if you're law enforcement executing the warrant, it's, it's almost as if you're you're going to kind of be more inclusive, right? You're going to pull more information maybe than than in other contexts because it's all information, right? So it's almost more akin to classic warrants where you would be looking for, um, let's just hypothetically say child pornography where that could be stored almost anywhere in a home, right? And this is getting into because the physical entrances into the digital is part of the problem. You talk about the Eastman cell phone being seized. We saw the news story about the congressman from Pennsylvania getting his cell phone seized. The problem is a cell phone is not like a house where you can you can like you said you using the example in the article you have a rifle that's not in a kitchen drawer okay because <laughs> it just physically can't get in there you can you can and we even saw it with like the Trump search warrant where they're supposed to go to certain rooms and there's this room and you can't go in this room and whatever and w people can hash that out later you can't do that with a phone you can't do that with a laptop you can't do that with a thumb drive so when you take somebody's cell phone it's I guess I theoretically you could say well you're not allowed to look in their you can look in their photos, but you can't look in their download folder. I guess theoretically you can do that, but practically that's not the same thing. So the laws just haven't caught up to this stuff. Isn't that kind of the core of the problem we go in this? Is like there's still those physical barriers, but the information isn't physical. 
Yes, I mean, it's 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 really difficult to apply even the best principles of law to this kind of a problem because you run into situations where you look at a phone, for instance, and they're not organized the same. You know, you take my phone and you see how my apps are arranged and you look at your phone and you're not going to have the same, even the same nomenclature um, for how the apps are organized. And so if you're law enforcement and you have, like, let's say that you have followed you have probable cause, you follow proper warrant protocols, and then you go to seize that device. How are you going to know to sort through what is and isn't relevant to your investigation, right? So it almost is as if you kind of have to be over, over-inclusive. It's, it's, it's not particularly easy to figure this out, which is why you see, um, it appears as though we're moving towards having having someone to review that, right? So in the case of Eastman, you're going to have potentially attorney-client privileged information on the device. And that, again, poses more problems because phones are multifunctional, right? They don't just store a lot of information, but they store a lot of information that is for a bunch of disparate purposes, right? So that that also lends itself to kind of the problem that we're running into, which is that you're not going to have just one purpose for that device. Therefore, when it sees, you're gonna again have more, far more information than you need, and part and in in many situations, a lot of information that you shouldn't have, <laughs> or or has nothing to do with the investigation. information is different. The investigations are different. So you go back a couple of years when this first kind of got in the news cycle, uh, the mass shooting in California, and they wanted to get into the iPhone and, and Apple resisted that and they it went to court and all that. So that's one piece. And then you have something like the Eastman thing where you have, you know, we, we th- there was some kind of shenanigans. You can parse that out legally later, however you want to do it. So they want to see what's there. Well, you've got the information, but there is attorney-client privilege and there is personal information. So it gets complicated. The investigations aren't the same either. So now, you know, we have a lot of lawyers on this program to explain this stuff. They don't even agree on this stuff. We know there's malfeasance. We know that things get abused. We know that people's individual rights get trampled. But isn't it fair to, as a starting point to go, even if law enforcement is really, really trying in this environment with the current laws, they don't even have a chance to try to do it the right way. And that's going to foster an environment for even more malfeasance, isn't it, if they don't get a handle on this? Yes, that's exactly my concern, is that these are very complicated um, problems that we're facing in the the judicial context, as far as not only, as I mentioned earlier, is a warrant valid? Have we met particularity? Are we perhaps out of bounds? 
um, with that. But also, again, just that digital scope, the digital world presents very different problems than the physical world. And it's not remotely clear how to solve those problems. Um, I mean, we've talked about some of them that you you enter a device, you don't have a similar nomenclature, where things are um, organized is going to be different. Law enforcement, again, if they're doing, even if they're doing their best, certainly can't trust the individual that they're investigating, you know, if, for instance, if you were to limit it, oh, you can look at their emails, but not this other, um, you know, folder, it would be very easy for people to just transfer information from A to B to skirt um, investigations, right? So you're, you kind of have these inherent problems that come with the territory. I think it's going to be interesting to see, obviously, in some contexts, you have um, taint teams that review these documents, but uh, in a in a very polarized environment, I'm not convinced that particularly in these high profile cases that people are going to be particularly trust trusting of those who are um, engaged in the process. And that's very unfortunate because given the problems we have, I think it is very, very important for our leaders to foster trust. And instead, we're most certainly right now seeing the opposite of that, right? Uh, things are very polarized, very um, driven by politics, which I think is 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 a problem in and of itself. Obviously, there's a lot of other problems that we could we could go down um, as far as you know the entire <laughs> you know concern. A lot of people have concerns that there's you know racial profiling. Others have concerns with political profiling. So it's just a highly polarized environment. And so these problems we're having that are are very inherent to just where we're at technologically certainly do not help with uh with sort of looking at the future and hoping for more clarity and uniformity in the way we handle these matters. Is there any way to get to uniformity though? I mean, what's the answer here? Because we're, we're going to have to have, there's people are going to want an overriding law on this tech stuff and legal stuff. I don't think you can do an overriding law. Are we doomed to, um, are we doomed to failure by piecemeal advancement here? And that's a weird way to say it, but that feels like what's coming here. Is that the way it feels to you? I, th I think we need a two-pronged approach. I think the first thing people need to understand, in my view, I do think to some degree this is a consumer problem. I think we've sort of, as a culture, slow walked into these issues by not really considering the potential costs of adopting very powerful technologies for multifunctional purposes without considering, again, the costs, right? We, And that's not to say that we, that we shouldn't have phones or anything like that, but it is... Um, I think something for people to consider of how they use their technology and how much information is stored where. I don't think these are considerations, for instance, that people have really been considering before some of these more very high profile scenarios occurred that kind of showed people what some problems look like, right? I would say probably five years ago, any of these warrant discussions would have been pretty obscure. And I think they're getting a lot more time in the in the limelight than they than they would have in other other years past. So I think one one thing certainly is to for for culture and individuals at an individual level of analysis to begin to consider how they want to use their devices, you know, what they want different devices to be for, so on and so forth. Um, and then as it relates to the legal side of things, I do think you're correct that one overarching law is not going to solve this problem. I think the um, judiciary is moving in the right direction, at least as far as it relates to um, having privacy rights and certain digital information. But 
as we all know, the judiciary moves notoriously slow. That's just how the process works. Um, it's part of it's, it's not a bad thing, by the way. I don't consider the speed of the judiciary to be a problem per se. You don't necessarily want your uh, justice system at the judicial level to be moving too quickly. That can also pose problems. So I do think the judiciary is is moving, has been showing signs of going in the right direction on these issues. But as it relates specifically to the scope of warrants in the digital context, that is going to be a, um, I think, an area of difficulty for some time as we try to you know, as a society work out what that looks like, because I, you're right that there's no overarching law that's going to solve that problem, because it it really is a problem of the information being so easy to transition from point A to point B in a digital context, right, that limiting where um, law enforcement can look once they have probable cause to seize the device itself becomes very difficult to say you can't look in this folder. Right. And then there's the, also the issue of cloud. So, for instance, when you um, get into a device, can you only look at what is locally stored on that device or can you look at anything that is uploaded to the cloud? So those are other concerns that that kind of a limitation, I do think, is more more for I would say is more likely to occur than others. Um, once something is locally stored on the device, I, I don't see what's going to limit law enforcement from looking at that. Um, but as it relates to the cloud, you could potentially have a requirement for a separate warrant, right, to view what's in the cloud. Yeah, um, Leslie Corbley joining us. We're going to take a quick break. We come back. We're going to talk some of the details of that. That's the legal side of it. Let's talk. We get back. We're going to talk the political side of it, the practical side of it. At some point, you're going to have to put legislation to pen and ink. It's got to be in black and white. What's that got to look like? What should it look like? What are we afraid it might look like? We're going to get into all that. <laughs> Leslie Corbley joining us uh, on her tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Uh, Leslie Corbley joining us. We have been talking about warrants, not the 80s band, the things that the uh, police can use to come and look through your stuff. There's some legal things involved in that you might have heard of. Folks aren't real sure where all the lines are that. We talked about the legal aspect. Let's talk about the political and the practical aspect for a second, because here's the problem. Um, anytime the technology or current events outruns the law, you've got to have new laws. Well, we know the court system is acting on this because they have to because you go to court both law enforcement and private citizens and advocacy groups they're all using through the court system that's one side of this what's supposed to happen in the american system of governments is we go to our legislatures and we make laws about such things i'm not super uh, enthusiastic that we're going to get good laws on this stuff anytime soon because a i've listened to some of these tech hearings they have no idea what they're talking about b like you said this is really complicated stuff and we have a divided uh, legislative branch right now that's got other priorities. Is there anything on the horizon legislatively that might be looking to address this problem anytime soon? So one of the encouraging signs that um, we can point to is looking at states. So here in the state, well, here as an I work for Libertas Institute, which is located in Lehigh, Utah right now, as you mentioned, I am temporarily on the East Coast, but uh, we have worked to pass 
laws in Utah that protect um, individual privacy rights, particularly as it relates to Fourth Amendment concerns. So that includes requiring a warrant before electronic information can be seized. Um, and then we are also currently really working on the issue of geofencing, wanting to ensure that general warrants are barred here in the 21st century, just as they were back um, at the founding of America, right? So I think that there are some encouraging signs. Are, my hope is on the at the state level, you're likely to see more movement than at the federal, uh, which is unfortunate. But as you mentioned, the federal Congress is very divided. Um, very few laws get through Congress that aren't uh, heavily full of pork <laughs> kind of special interest groups that have gotten together and kind of poured everything in the kitchen sink into the bill. So it is very difficult to get movement at the federal level. Well, if we can't get the federal level, what about state level? Is there any movement now? Now, this is going to get complicated because, you know, they're going to go to court and try to get the federals anything they don't like at the state level. But, you know, these are supposed to be, you know, the the laboratories of democracy. What at the state level? Because some of these states are actually taking some some initiative on some of these issues. Is that going to be a route to we can at least start getting some stuff moving and then maybe that'll kickstart the federal level? Sure. Some of the part of the problem here is that there are multiple um, concerns going on with privacy. So, for instance, there's like we mentioned, geofence, there's the digital scope of warrant. And then there's also things like genetic digital privacy um, is becoming a problem. So any anywhere that you have a large database um, of information, you could think of as, as sort of posing a risk. Uh, so again, in Utah, we have barred uh, the, we have, we have ensured that the, we have a law on the books ensuring that there is a warrant requirement prior to, to um, law enforcement seeking to obtain, you know, any kind of electronic information from an electronic device. So that is a good movement in the right direction. I know that Maryland passed a um, genetic, I want to say genetic data or genetic privacy bill. So that is related to DNA uh, and how you would obtain that. And several other states are making movement on privacy. I know Montana, for instance, is is looking heavily at the facial recognition issue. So these issues are both ongoing and that the risks, um, the risks don't just relate to one type of information. And so we're, it's going to be an ongoing process uh, to attempt to ensure that individuals maintain their privacy rights in the 21st century. I do think there's more movement, though, at the state level than there is at federal, again, both for obvious reasons that federal is very polarized and also federal action is just very uncommon now. Um, you don't have the same, if you look at the patterns of legislation, you don't have the same type of lawmaking now that you did say in like 1970. Well, because we don't have the technology in 1970, we don't have the government we had in 1970. Let's be real clear about that. We don't have the same culture and people we had in 1970. The other problem we have when you go to legislate this stuff, and we're seeing this in the tech hearings already, where they're talking about, well, we need to regulate Facebook and, and we need to regulate. Uh, we've had the court cases now where Alexa overhears crimes and things like this. The problem is like, well, they're talking about regulating Facebook. None of my kids do Facebook. Like Facebook is two technologies ago already. Like by the time they get around to regulating this stuff, we're already onto the new thing. Isn't that going to be a problem with some of this technology with the warrants is by the time Congress dithers around for five or 10 years and writes a bill on something, we're already on to the next thing and it's just passes by again. Now, I know that's a recurring thing. You're never always going to have legislation catching up all the time. But when it comes to something like warrants where the armed enforcement wing of the government can come into your home or come into your private property or come into your life and really wreak some havoc, this is a big problem with a lot. And we've seen, unfortunately, societally, 
this has immediate ramifications. This isn't just, you know, talking about tax code where you might pay a little extra sometime next year. People can get hurt. People can lose their property. People can have their lives wrecked. I'm a little frustrated that there ain't a sense of urgency about this issue. Do you see any sense of urgency about it? Because there needs to be. I think that the lack of sense of urgency often relates to the fact that it's not, it's not a simple, easy soundbite type of an issue, right? Where you can get uh, kind of an easy political win, so to speak, um, which is unfortunate. As far as something that I think would be helpful for your listeners to know, though, I, there's no requirement, like you mentioned, regulating Facebook. There's no requirement for individuals to work with with social media companies or other tech um, and communications companies that they don't trust. And I do think we need to encourage individuals to be much more cautious with whom they do business um, in in our current era. Right? If the law, if law enforcement, for instance, goes to I hypothetically Snapchat and you've never had a Snapchat account, there's nothing for them to hand over. Right. Um, and so that relates to uh, the third party doctrine. I know we've kind of moved into the political discussion rather than legal, but the third party doctrine makes it much, much easier for law enforcement to access information from um, entities like tech companies that uh, individuals have given information over to them. So essentially the third party doctrine says that once you've handed over uh, any some information to a third party entity, you no longer have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. And therefore, um, you know, it's easier for law enforcement to obtain. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons, for instance, in Utah, that we passed a bill requiring a warrant before obtaining electronic information, because obviously in the digital age, pretty much everything is done through a third party, right? It's not like um, 1960s and 70s when some of these lines of cases came out where you know, very much less, much, a much smaller amount of information was handed over to a third party, right? So again, that that relates, I know, to the legal, but it is important for people to understand that because if you know that, I think it makes it easier for you as an individual to say, huh, I know I would really like to know, company, what your policies are, what, for instance, what data do you obtain on me? Like, what, what data do you first gather, uh, because not, if, for instance, with geofences, if Google didn't gather your location data, they wouldn't have that to hand over to law enforcement. Now, obviously they do, but that's that the point is for individuals to know it is within their power to ask these questions before they contract. Okay, I kind of want to know what, what data you collect, how do you just store it, how long do you store different data points, right? So that you can kind of assess uh, your individual risk, because I don't think a lot of people are thinking of this as a risk calculation, but it really is because the reality of the situation is that once you are engaging in any kind of conduct on these platforms, you don't really necessarily have control over where that information goes. calculation the, the reason the risk calculation is all screwed up is because people don't understand their rights and you ended your piece with this and this is a good way to kind of dovetail this down a little bit law enforcement doesn't know the boundaries on this individual people don't know the boundaries on this companies don't know the boundaries on this 
everybody's uncertain. And as you said in your piece, you know, everybody, law enforcement defendants alike are swimming in a sea of uncertainty. That's a recipe for disaster. When we're talking culture and politics, we want to talk about, you know, the the policies and whatever the hottest thing going on that is going and the, and the horse race politics and the culture politics. This is stuff that can affect your everyday life because the part of the government the most people interact with is not a politician. It's law enforcement. This is the stuff we should really be focusing on. And like you said, when there's uncertainty, that breeds all kinds of bad things happening. And we've seen the viral videos of what happens when law enforcement doesn't know what to do with certain defendants. How do we get certainty in this? Is it going to be a policy fix? Is it going to be a cultural fix where people just start taking their own responsibility for their data? Is it a technology fix where they figure out a better way to individualize, for lack of a better term? But when it comes to privacy, that's what the argument is. What's the path forward, do you think? And I know it's going to be a ratio of some of those combined, but give us a couple of things you think of. I definitely think it's going to be a combination. I think at the individual level, we really need to start. I think there needs to be good messaging. And it's something I I will be working on is uh, to ensure that people understand the risks associated with different data points. Right. So let's take a geofence warrant, for instance, where it's a reverse warrant, meaning they're seeking caches of data that has already been collected by a tech company. Um, there is already there's been the first litigation case initiated in relation to keyword search history, which can operate in the same manner. You know, tech company hand over all searches from, you know, of certain terms or certain terms combined. It could look differently depending on what the what law enforcement's asking for. But the point being that initially law enforcement obtains an anonymized data in relation to these to these requests, and then eventually it moves to an unmasking process. So I do think individuals need to understand that, not to be overly concerned of law enforcement, but to understand that if you're if you're operating in society now, you don't necessarily have control over company policies, over how easy it is for law enforcement to access data from company X. You know, and so you want to know: Am I willing to take to accept to? take on this risk, right, of having this specific data point um, collected and stored, right? So for instance, it recently, there was a recent CNN article that that discussed how uh, wireless companies also store uh, location data for months and at times years. So there's all these data points out there and they're stored in these large databases. So I think that there's an individual aspect um, that can give that can push the needle in the right direction. I think that also, by the way, can relate hopefully to the marketplace in the sense that companies that value privacy and value data minimization, which essentially means minimizing the number of data sets you collect information on, and therefore there's less information for you to ever hand over uh, hypothetically, right? I think that that individuals valuing their privacy and saying, hmm, I'm not sure I wanna work with companies that collect data in certain ways, so on and so forth, can push the marketplace towards um, towards favorability for companies who do truly value privacy and are able to deliver that to their to consumers. So I think that's piece of the puzzle. I think policy um, is also a piece of that puzzle. Uh, for instance, the work we've done in Utah to ensure warrant requirements are strong for electronic data is important. And we do think that the law needs to change in relation to geofence warrants and other reverse warrants where law enforcement is seeking information that, um, again, these caches of data and the whole point is to, to find a suspect. You don't have a suspect on the front end when you do a geofence uh, warrant. The whole point is to get a cache of data and then you sift through it for relevance. And it's generally a three-step process. 
that ends in unmasking. Uh, and I don't, don't think that that kind of a process is going to elicit a lot of trust from individuals right now. Again, you have a lot of people in different factions of American society that are very concerned with different types of biases that they believe are influencing uh, individuals who in powerful positions, including law enforcement. And that's just the reality on the ground. And again, I do think it's very important for individuals to understand that, that they can have control over their risk profile because mm -hmm. the, it's going to be a, of both and approach of policy and culture. And I would also hope business practice comes into play. Yeah, we're doing a lot of wishing and hoping, and we don't have a lot of faith that this is going to get better anytime soon. So we're going to keep talking to, to folks like Leslie about it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you've got going on, where they can follow you till we get you back on her tail to keep talking about this, because this isn't going away. This is this is going to be the the issue in privacy rights and law for the foreseeable future. So let folks know where they can keep up with you talking about it till we get you back to talk about it with us. Sure. So I work with the Libertas Institute. I also have my um, own website. It's just my name, lesliecorbley.com. I host all of my articles there. It's a, it's a good hub just for my content. And then um, I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter for now. Uh, in the future, I will likely add some other platforms to that. But right now I'm on Twitter at Corbley Leslie and also on LinkedIn. Folks can go in there and follow along and I post all my content on on those platforms. Yep. We'll link to all of that. You can see her Twitter on the screen there if you're watching on the YouTube channels. And we greatly appreciate your time. Leslie Corbley, uh, love the talk. Appreciate the information. And we will talk again real, real soon, my friend. Thank you for the time today. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Welcome back to her tell. Okay. Been wanting to talk to her for a little while. Finally got it done. She's busy. We had to get her on the schedule. Uh, Quinn Townsend is another of our great young voices contributors. She has a master's in resource management economics from West Virginia university. Might've heard I'm a little fond of them subtly. Uh, she's also a policy manager at the Alaska policy forum. She writes about taxes, education, healthcare, state budgets. Might ask her about all of them. We'll just have to see how it goes. Quinn, how are you, ma'am? Thanks for the time today. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, enjoy having you. Thank you so much for the time. You did some writing uh, in Real Clear Energy, and we've been talking about this on and off, but you wanted to talk about the tax credits with EVs, electric vehicles. Let's start with some nomenclature because this gets confusing really quick for folks because it's become a buzzword. Like just say, like just the abbreviation, you put EV on your Twitter account, people will uh, pounce and gather and start debating it whether regardless of what you put after EV they'll just jump all over 
Um, I've got a couple on my Twitter feed. Anytime I mention Tesla, all of a sudden they show up. You never hear them any other time, right? People key in on this stuff. What is an electric vehicle tax credit? Because we keep talking about it. Just define it for us. Make sure we're all on the same song sheet here. Sure. So an electric vehicle tax credit is a credit that you can, if you as an individual or, you know, part of your family, you as a family um, purchase an electric vehicle, when you do your taxes for that year, um, you put that as like a, it's similar to a tax write-off. So it's part of your taxes and then you will get that credit when you get your tax return, typically. Um, it's easiest to just think of it as an amount that you get off of the final price of your car. Yeah. And this becomes an issue because anytime you have a credit or a subsidy or whatever terminology you want to use, that's going to influence behavior of the consumer. It's designed to be that way. What's the practical application of that when we start talking about things like uh, electric vehicles, though? Is it actually working to influence behavior or is it just moving money around? Um, the short answer is it's just moving money around. So the intent of these EV tax credits um, is to influence, is to help, I'm putting that in quotes, air quotes, um, is to help Americans um, buy electric vehicles that they would not otherwise be able to afford. Um, but this tax credit is supposed to help them afford, you know, an electric vehicle. Um, so that's the intention of a, of a tax credit policy. However, it also influences um, manufacturers. So I just saw in the news this a few days ago that Ford and GM both just happenstance, you know, circumstantially increased the cost of their um, EV, so their electric vehicles, um, by between $6,000 and $8,000, which is right around the amount of the tax credit that just that was just passed. Um, so that's coincidental. The reason that becomes like that is we see it in other areas as well, not just manufacturing of cars and stuff. We see it in education. We see it in grant writing in, in the academic field. We see it in science with academics. We just went through this with the COVID stuff. Anytime there's a source of government money, people are going to flock to try to get in line for that government money. The problem is when you have, you know, not emergent because we've had electric vehicles for over 100 years, but the current itineration of electric vehicles, this is an evolving technology. So when you start incentivizing it a certain way, that's going to affect how these manufacturers address it, isn't it? Yes. And that's um, that was my main part of my criticism in the article that I wrote about these tax credits is that um, there's lots of the government has put on stipulations uh, for these tax credits. So the electric vehicle that you were that you want to buy has to be um, under a certain price. Um, and manufacturers, companies that are selling these vehicles have to um, hit all of these targets for where they're getting the minerals to build the battery and um, then where they manufacture the car itself. And especially for newer companies, which there are a lot in this EV space, um, that's really hard to do because so much of the supply chain is um, not in North America which is what the requirement are. 
for. And that gets into something that you touched on the piece, Quinn Townsend joining us. The problem with the EVs and the thing that's limiting the technology and then the thing that gets into the manufacturing that you're going to talk about here in the piece is the battery technology. And EV mm -hmm. cars only as good as the battery because that's what makes this thing go. And the problem with the batteries, besides the battery life and the range and all that, that's getting it's getting better. I mean, it's getting closer to what a normal gas car would have, that 300 kind of mile range that most cars would have with a tank of gas. They're getting there, but they need all these rare earth minerals to do that. And the problem with that is we don't have hardly any control whatsoever over those rare earth minerals, do we? Right. So China specifically owns the lion's share of companies that extract and then um, like put together and process the critical minerals that are needed for these batteries. Um, and so these tax credits, one of the stipulations is that manufacturers must um, get their rare earth minerals from, from either the United States here in the United States or a um, country with which we have a free trade agreement. But it's really, it's easiest to just think about it as a made in America requirement. Uh, and that's really difficult to do because it's extremely difficult to get a mine approved in the US, um, particularly under the Biden administration the last few years. Now, I didn't know this one. I love reading stuff that I learned something in. But at the same time the Biden administration was doing this with one hand, on the other hand, one of the few rare places where we might be able to get these rare earth minerals mined, they were kind of shutting them down regulatory-wise. Talk about that for a minute, because it seems almost backwards policy, but it sounds so much like the government that at the same time they're doing that, they were also using regulatory reform to kill the Ambler Mining District up in Alaska. Mm -hmm. So really, this is a problem of a government created problem. And so the government's solution is to use more government to fix the problem that they created in the first place, which means it's the solution isn't working. Um, so back in April, President Biden used the DPA, the Defense Protection Act, to um, to encourage the extraction and processing of critical minerals specifically in the US. But at the same time, um, the Biden administration has also been um, throwing up lots of red tape to stop the creation and the continued use of mines in the, in the US, including the Ambler access mine in Alaska. Yeah, Quinn Townsend joining us. Now, we, we've also been critical of the DPA usage here on our program for a couple different things. You could kind of make the argument, though. I, I mean, I can see it on paper, like China's an adversary. You know, they're not friends. They've also got, you know, the horrendous human rights stuff. They're imperialistic. They're expanding. We need to get a hold of this. Okay, fine. But as you detailed in the piece, we have the ability to do some of this. Um, there's a polymet copper and nickel mine in Minnesota, lithium in Nevada, Copper in Arizona, copper and gold in Alaska, of course, which, you know, <laughs> gold in Alaska. Tell me if you've ever heard that one before. 
We do, but the thing is with the current regulatory environment and with the environmental, and not that mining doesn't need strict environmental guidelines, it does. We're, we're both West Virginians. We know better than anybody what happens when you don't regulate those things. In the current environment, people aren't even going to start looking for those kind of minerals or even start that process unless they have a consistent and coherent policy. So when you're piecemealing it and doing this, go on one hand, stop on the other hand, that's really going to kill innovation and in trying to find this domestically, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Quinn Townsend joining us. Um, one other thing that I noticed in your piece and I wanted to ask you about, uh, when we came back to this made in America concept, we've seen this in other areas. It doesn't usually work out very well. Uh, made in America didn't work out good for steel. Made in America hasn't worked out really good for car manufacturers. When we look at this big picture, how would we healthily look at something like EV production domestically? Because, you know, the technology is going that way. I don't think it's there yet. I think it's going to get there. We mm -hmm. obviously want to make it here in America. We know what happened, you know, in the 80s and 90s with car production going overseas or outside of our borders. What would that look like policy-wise to try to healthily do it, not just sticking their thumb on the scales for the government to promote something like that? Yeah, I think broadly speaking, the solution is for policymakers to just to step out of the way. Um, there's so many innovators and entrepreneurs in the United States that know way more about electrical vehicles than me or any politician. Um, and generally speaking, most people understand that things like mining need to be, happen ethically and um, in an environmentally safe way. So there do obviously need to be environmental guardrails around something like a private approving a new mine. Um, but the regulatory process takes years. I mentioned in my article, um, one mine specifically uh, in the Midwest, I believe, it has been under approval or has been under the process of being approved for over 10 years, which is an incredibly, a whole decade is a really long time for a business to be twiddling their thumbs waiting for a project to be approved. Um, so it really comes down to streamlining the streamlining the permitting process um, is one thing that would that would really help in terms of mining for EVs. And these rare earth minerals are also critical for things like our cell phones and solar panels and all of these other technologies that that we are using and we're not we're not going to be letting go of our cell phones anytime soon. So these critical minerals are are critical. That's a good name for them. Yeah. And the thing about them being critical is there's probably stuff that we can make out of this stuff that we don't even know about yet. If mm -hmm. we could get a hold of the manufacturing process. Uh, Quinn Townsend joining us. Great information on this. The piece is up at Real Clear Energy. We're going to link to it. Like we always tell you, read the whole piece in its entirety. She's got some other stuff linked within that as well. Read it for yourself and decide. Uh, Quinn, great information on this. Really appreciate it. Where can folks find you and follow you? And what do you have going on till we talk to you again on Hertel? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Quinn underscore Townsend, number one, the numeral one. Um, I'm not super active on Twitter, but that's where you can find me. Yep. And she's up at her Young Voices page. We'll link to that as well. And the policy work she's doing, uh, doing some local writing in West Virginia. We'll talk about that with her some other time. Quinn, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yes, ma'am.
Dr. Hertel. Okay, let's go back overseas, going to Germany, a country I love dearly. Got to live there two different times, close to my heart, and a new contributor from Young Voices. Very excited to talk to him, Torben Albi. Halby. See, I messed it up and I was even practicing it despite my German. My uh, my Sprechen Sie Deutsch is not what it should be, my friend, but I'm glad to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. Uh, you were writing about Sri Lanka before we get into the details for it, because we've been covering it for our audience because it crosses a whole lot of streams with geopolitics, um, economic things, uh, foreign policy stuff. What got you into looking into Sri Lanka? Because I know while we've been covering it, what got you interested in it that you started digging into it yourself? Well, to be honest, I never had much interest in Sri Lanka, except for, well, I am generally following politics around the world, uh, but I had no special interest in Sri Lanka. But I, am a bi but I am a biologist, you know. Of course, I followed the news about the current crisis in Sri Lanka. And then I heard that organic farming was related to it um, because there was a ban on organic farming in April of 2021, which contributed to the whole crisis. As a politically interested biologist, I have, well, I like to criticize organic farming, uh, not as a luxury, but I criticize the idea that it would be able to feed mankind, basically. And I I admire science and I, I, I admire the, well, the progress that has been made in food production, if you consider artificial fertilizers and pesticides, and I think those are, well, some of the best inventions in the history of mankind. And then you have these people, these organic farming universalists, so to speak, who just want to get rid of that for ideological reasons. And uh, that really bothers me. Now, you say you're a biologist. People are going to like, well, what's that got to do with politics? Well, it has quite a bit to do with it, but let's get the nomenclature right, because when you see organic, people think organic like the, the label they see at the supermarket, something is organic. Organic farming in and of itself isn't new because farmers have always, you know, they raise their livestock, then they use the manure for the livestock to fertilize their field. That, that kind of organic stuff has been going on for centuries. That's all healthy stuff. When you're talking organic farming in a bad sense when it comes to things like Sri Lanka, though, this is a new use of the word organic, isn't it? Where they're trying to just strip away any kind of advancements in technology. Just walk us through the nomenclature as a biologist for a minute. What you mean by this kind of organic? Yes, you're right. Uh, traditional farming was organic. People had no choice, basically. They would farm very ineffectively, backbreaking labor, without machines, uh, without artificial fertilizer. Well, this kind of gradually started to change. For example, uh, people started to use guano. I don't know how it's pronounced in English. It's like the it's like bird shit, basically. Yeah. And what like uh, a, a very effective fertilizer. For example, during the colonial age, that it was discovered, and for for most of the industrial age, it was used to 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 fertilize fields. There were even wars about some islands which contained a lot of that. But then um, there was a German chemist, Fritz Haber, developed a, an amazing uh, method to get nitrogen out of the air. As you know, nitrogen is the main constituent of air, but it's molecular, ni molecular nitrogen, N2, which is not very reactive. And then he, he figured out a method to 
to combine it with hydrogen to um, produce ammonium in the end, which you can use to fertilize. And this changed everything. And well, it helped to even sustain the, the population in the world that we have today. And of course, the other important development were pesticides. Before pesticides, you would have farmers used to do it by hand, but eventually you would have machi machines to do it. Pesticides kind of do away with that need to put that much labor into getting rid of all those harmful other plants which would compete with your food plants. Yeah, and basically what they did was when you can fertilize and you cut down on pesticides, which cuts down, you're increasing the yield exponentially. People can grow a lot more crops and they can do it more sustainably and they can get more. They're going to know what they're going to get out of each crop, that sort of thing. So fast forward to Sri Lanka. The government in Sri Lanka in 2021 starts cracking down on organic farming. Now, this is a country that's already impoverished to start with. But when they started to crack down on this organic farming, and again, not natural farming or cyclical farming, we call it in English. I don't know what they call it in Europe, but uh, I can I can smell the smell right now driving through the German countryside. They still organically fertilize in a lot of places. Um, in Sri Lanka, the government started intervening and pushing for this new organic farming, they called it, where they didn't want the fertilizer and they didn't want the pesticide. What happened in Sri Lanka that started a lot of the tragedy that we're seeing now? Well, in Sri Lanka, they decided to do basically an overnight ban of for, for the import of inorganic fertilizer as well as synthetic pesticides like glyphosate. So it was just banned, you know, so people couldn't import it anymore. And for the farming, they had relied on that this just destroyed farming and uh, it had an effect on rice farming which is like the main food they grow there but it also had an effect on tea farming which they normally export and which really contributes to the trade balance of, of Sri Lanka because it's an ex important uh, and expensive good that they export so they at the same time um reduce their ability to export which uh, uh, plunge a lot of people into, into poverty and they also were not able to grow enough food for their own population anymore which they then had to try and import and uh, you have to remember that at that time they they already were in a currency crisis so the currency was already weak they already had few uh, foreign foreign reserve uh, in currency so and now all of a sudden the exports died down and they had to import a lot of food which really added to the crisis overall so not only people had a food shortage and uh, couldn't really farm anymore but it really spiraled out of control into other areas of the economy because of the whole foreign exchange problem Because Sri Lanka, as we've been covering, 
they they are down to almost no foreign currency reserves. This is an island nation. So when you have to start importing and exporting, that's more fuel. That's more effort. Um, the food shortage problem, of course, rises prices on everything else. The fuel shortage means you can't make food. When you can't produce your own food in a country, especially an isolated country, an island country that's already impoverished, that's a domino that is just basically the worst possible thing to have happen to an economy, especially one that was already under stress, as you pointed out. Exactly. And before before that ban, they could produce all the foods they needed, at least when it comes to rice. Of course, they would have imported other foods to some degree, but rice, which was the main food for them, they were uh, self-sufficient on that. As long as they still had fertilizer, as long as they still had uh, uh, real pesticides. Um, and ironically, the whole scheme of just banning the import of these things was supposed to save the the currency and it was supposed to save the you know the foreign reserves the foreign currency reserves because well some someone looked at the the balance and saw that each year they ex sorry they import a lot of fertilizer and they import a lot of pesticides and then well they thought let's just ban it so we no longer have to import all that stuff and we will no longer have to will pay for it and lose our remaining foreign currency. But of course, that's not how it works, because in the end, it costs them much more. You know, they were no longer importing it, but then they couldn't grow enough food and they couldn't grow enough tea to export. So it was a, a bad decision for the, the, the balance overall. Yeah, Torben Holby joining us. And the thing about this is we know that the, the, the current government, well, the now ex-government, because they've had to flee, the government in Sri Lanka had a lot of issues. They had some nepotism. They had incompetence. They had corruption. But the international community, there was a lot of cheerleading for this rule when it first came into place, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, if we talk about organic organic farming, and I don't mean organic farming in the sense that, you know, some some wealthy people just buy it as a luxury. This is, well, this is just a market, I would say. I'm not talking about organic farming as a universal idea where people want to turn all farming all farming organic um, and there are some scholars and activists around the world many in the west but also in other countries who well they think it would be a really good idea to just uh, scrap conventional farming entirely and that lobbying for this in a different different ways in the west politics is, is, is quite complex and a lot of interest groups have some interaction so you couldn't just ban organic farming overnight. What you will have in the West is two things. You will either, uh, these activists and scholars uh, will either try to go for limits, which means, for example, you have a limit on nitrate, which you can emit into the environment as a farmer. And since uh, mineral fertilizer will contain nitrate, you will easily go over that limit. So this is kind of like an indirect pressure to against conventional farming. And it this is the cause of the current Dutch farmers' protests in the EU, because the EU has these, these limits. Um, and uh, Dutch farming is very intensive. Even though it's like quite a small country, they are feeding a lot of Europe, basically, because they have very efficient, uh, intensive farming. Uh, and all those other European countries, well, it's kind of the problem if you have a union of a lot of countries and they are very different. 
for all those countries who do not have that intensive farming, it's easy to agree to some limits on nitrate because, well, for them, it just looks good in the media and they will never reach those limits anyway. But, well, the Dutch do reach those limits, you know. So that's that's one thing in developed in developed countries. And the other things, the other thing would be to define like a percentage-based uh, area for organic farming, which has also happened in the EU. Uh, there's a EU strategy to turn 20% of the entire well farmland in the EU uh, to organic farming in the next few years. So again, this is not considering the market. It's just like a political directive, which people because of some some lobbyists have um, well implemented. But in the West, you will still have farmers associations and other lobbies who work against this. So you will not get 100%, which is good. 20% enforced, 20% is bad, but it's better than it's still better than 100%. Well, in developing countries, if you are such a lobbyist and you somehow manage to influence, for example, in Sri Lanka, the ruling family, so to speak, um, you can go for crazy things like 100% overnight. And that was what really happened in Sri Lanka was, even if you were going to do this, farmers plan way ahead of time. They're planning two or three seasons ahead of time. They're, you know, right now we're into the fall. They've already planned for the winter. They're already working on spring and next year's, but because they're always working ahead. You, you know, your background is in biology. What kind of an effect to the practical farming is it when you just get a rule out of the clear blue sky that is immediately implemented like this? It's the worst case scenario, and it's absolutely impossible for the farmers because they've already got their crops in for not only this season, but probably next season. They're stored up for the winter, whatever the seasons are down there. This is a devastating thing to just spring on an industry like farming without any warning whatsoever, isn't it? Yes, of course, especially if you consider that Sri Lanka is a quite poor country. What happened in Sri Lanka was that large parts of the farmlands went unused even because farmers didn't know what to deal with it. Nearly a third of agricultural land uh, remained unused in 2021 and rice production fell by 20%. Yeah, that's what happens. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think even the Soviets were able to do that that fast back in the day. Uh, Torben Holbin joining us. I'm going to keep working on his name. I'm going to get it right, I promise. Uh, he's got another example in the piece from neighboring to Sri Lanka over in India. We're going to talk about that real quick, continue to talk about the organic mission, kind of where the politics and the practical aren't matching up. Our friend Torben Holbe over in Germany will continue on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hort. See, I was practicing my German. Now I can't even say the name of my own show in English. But as our friend just pointed out, the language of the world is bad English. So we're all good here. I'm Andrew Donaldson. This is Hertel. That's Torben Albe. That's our good friend from Germany joining us. We're having a little bit of a language problem, but we're going to get through it because he's a very sharp individual. We're talking about Sri Lanka, but you compared next door to Sri Lanka, of course, is India. India is one of the world powers. One of the reasons we have been paying attention to Sri Lanka is because China's involved, India's involved, America holds a bond on a lot of the debt. This is a lot of geopolitics. 
but you took one of the farming examples from neighboring India. Tell us about that and how it also proves that this organic mission of farming, this new definition of organic farming, this is probably going to fail just about everywhere they try it if they insist on doing this top-down kind of instant change thing instead of letting it, for lack of a better term, organically develop and the technology involve, right? Well, I would say even if you give it time, you will never reach 100% of organic farming. You will probably not even reach the 20% that uh, the European Union is trying to go for because it's not efficient. You know, the, the idea that, as I said, a lot of experts and activists uh, were lobbying Sri Lanka for this decision. Uh, one example is actually a guy from Washington. His name is Hans Rudolf Herren. Uh, he, so Hans Rudolf Herren of Washington-based Millennium Institute was one of these experts. And, and another was Vandana Shiva from India. So it's not all Western experts, but uh, still quite a lot. They were, they were first lobbying Sri Lanka to go for this change overnight. And when that succeeded, the international community of these activists applauded Sri Lanka for the decision. Of course, well, it didn't go well. So the reaction was to say, uh, of this direct direction of this pro-organic farming community was to say, well, it was just too sudden, you know. The farmers didn't have time to adapt even though, well, it was some of them who actually advised the government to go for this sudden change, however. So the farmers didn't have time to adapt. And if you go for it more slowly, then it will work out. And you can just slowly but surely turn all farming farming organic. Uh, but you mentioned India, and there is a state in India, which is called Sikkim. And in that state, they actually try to go for universal organic farming, but in a slow and controlled way and it still turned out bad what happened in what happened in Sikkim was so they began the organic mission as they called it in 2003 and then only 13 years later in 2016 they declared it to be fully organic and this was a law so all farmers were strictly forbidden to use synthetic pesticides and chemical fertilizers it didn't turn out well even though they had been many years to adapt because well, it's a, in the same year, 2016, some researchers declared Sikkim food deficient. They said that farming, organic farming, can only provide 30% 30, 30 of the population's needs. And well, the other 70% of food had to be imported. So they started to import non-organic food from neighboring Indian states, um, which is a pattern which we will continue to see. For example, the same thing happened in Bhutan, which is another state in the region which also tried to go for 100% organic farming as soon as you go for that you will not have enough food the food price will rise and if you don't want people to starve especially in a, in a developing country you will have to import non-organic food so in the end you're just i don't know uh, sabotaging your own non-organic farming just to import organic uh, non-organic food from other countries which makes no sense actually yeah, and eventually the uh, the government in Sikkim saw it as a problem that the, the organic transition doesn't work. And their, their idea was to try and ban the import of non-organic food. But uh, luckily, 
this led to protests. You know, people, not only farmers, I think also the retailers protested because because they knew that people wouldn't have been able to pay six times the price for the food. Not even middle class customers could have done that. Uh, so they protested and in the end, the government of Sikkim didn't ban the import of other food, uh, of, of non-organic food. This protest prevented starvation and rioting because in Sri Lanka, we actually see rioting and we actually see the food shortage. Why Why is there such a disconnect? Because farming is not like some esoteric debate club topic. You're either producing food or you're not. This is a hard and fast kind of business of like you produce the food or you don't. You produce the animals, you don't. You produce the crops or you don't. And if you don't produce food, people are going to suffer. And yet there's still folks and activists that just despite this evidence in front of them will continue to push this you know, no matter what, we need to do this right now because of reasons. And they'll say environmental reasons or political reasons or whatever the case may be. I don't understand how you can see human suffering and not go, okay, we we need to adjust here. And yet we're seeing it, like you just said, we saw it in India. We're seeing it in Sri Lanka. We're going to see it again and again. Why is there that disconnect between what's happening in reality and the, you know, the activist, intellectual, political, the folks that sit in places like Brussels that don't put their hands in the dirt, they just can't seem to put the two and two together or do they just don't care? Well, that's a classic problem of intellectualism, I would say. You have intellectuals in all areas who don't work. It's not just farming, you know. You have people whose only job is to criticize those who do work. And if you then succeed in your criticism and, uh, well, some measures get taken, some political measures. The only thing you can do is, well, keep criticizing because it's your job, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> you you kind of have to keep criticizing until all the limits for nitrate and all the other stuff is so, well, problematic, so, 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 so impossible to keep that entire systems collapse. So this, this class of intellectuals is a huge problem. Another problem is, at least in Western systems, as I said, you still have farmers associations who kind of work against that, which is good. But in politics, this is all about compromise. You know, if you have one side who asks for some limits on nitrate, for example, and you have the other side who says, oh, let's have no limits, the normal political process will result in some compromise, which is in the middle. So you have some sort of limit. And then a few years later, there will be the same discussion again. So the, 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 the activists will ask for higher limits, and then the farmers will say, oh, no, let's keep the current limits. And then, well, another compromise, you know. Uh, this is a problem with politics that um, it's not about who, who knows what's best, because that would be the market. The, in the market, if farmers were just in the market, they would now for what cost they can produce how much food and uh, where to sell it, you know, and the customers would know how much they want to pay. But in politics, it's not about that. In politics, it's about, well, who has a lobby, who has power, and then you work on some sort of compromise between these people. What should we gather, though? Because like you said, the richer countries or richer individuals that want to do organic farming, you know, they're, they're more than capable of going out, buying some farmland and doing this to their heart's content. What should we take away the fact that European countries and other countries, they seem to converge on a place like Sri Lanka that's already got problems and that are susceptible and they're, let's just call it what it is. They're kind of being victimized here 
with this. They're getting guinea pigged on stuff like this. Just on a moral level, I find that to be very wrong. But also on a policy, if you really want to advocate for your thing, why would you try it in somewhere that's probably doomed to fail anyway because of the circumstances? This really feels like they took advantage of Sri Lanka on multiple levels here to me. Does it to you? Yes, to me, it feels like a sort of colonialism. I, I dislike the word because so many leftists use it, you know, for, for all sorts of things. <laughs> but, in, but in that case, it really, it really is like that. You have, well, you have wealthy, powerful people in the West. But in the West, they are making slow progress. Well, progress from their point of view. Because in the West, politics is more complex, more, uh, more integrated. And other people also have a say. So instead, they go to to places where it's easier to influence politics. To a degree, they really believe in it. Of course, there's money in that. It, it, there's money in that too. If you, for example, produce organic fertilizer or something like that, then of course, if you can uh, influence political decisions so that you will sell more of it, you will make money. Uh, but but that's not all of it. I think they're really just convinced that this would be good for the world, and they make a living from telling people that it's, that it would be good for the world. So they they have to keep going. You know, they have to to keep it running. What's the uh, what's a practical thing we can talk to? Put your biology hat on for just a second. What's something practical here? Because really, the problem with this is when you come in with a top down regulatory thing like this organic farming. What we really need to do if we're worried about feeding people, which should be the first concern with farming, is how to unleash them, not how to entangle them in something that's not going to work. Is it a policy answer? Is it a public pressure answer? Is it highlighting this failure and dealing with it in a human way? What's the path forward here to try to get some traction on this issue in a productive way, do you think? It's a good question. I mean, in the in the big picture, I think we as well, somewhat classical liberal people, we are always arguing against arguing against all the intellectuals and all those areas. But that's probably too big of a of a thing to address, and it will take many years, I guess, to to go to the bottom of that problem. And it will not help. It will not help with the current debate. So, well, the science is quite clear. The science is clear. Plants will need nutrients. And if you don't get those nutrients to them in an efficient way, they will not grow as efficiently. Same for pesticides. If your plants are always beset by some sort of, uh, I don't know, insect or whatever, that will take away from, away from the total nutrition this plant can provide, and it might even kill the plant. You can also look at history. You can see how in the past, uh, from the same field, people were able to get far less uh, food than they can now. And uh, if you look at European history, you will a lot of you will see a lot of episodes where where there was starvation because uh, the harvest failed. You know, and these are things that we no longer have because of fertilizer and 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 because of pesticides, because of progress, technological technological progress. This is one argument that I would make. But to to some degree, the whole culture of arguing is intellectual in itself you know what i mean it's always about well this notion that you could come up with with some solution to very complex pro problems that you could, could come up with some solutions in some sort of abstract level where some smart people discuss while i think in truth the solution is with the 
people on the ground, you know, the people who, who do the farming, who, who have some practical experience, but they are not intellectuals. They will not join any discussions in any uh, proper way. And even if they would, it's it's not some sort of information that you that you could put into words. You know, the, the, the knowledge where to plant what and how to fertilize your your field and all of that. It's not good for intellectual debate. So what I would I would try to argue is to just leave it to the people who know how to do it. That's what I, that's what I would at least try to do, even though I think with the current culture of debate, it will be difficult. Leave it to the people that know what they're doing is such a simple concept, and yet we develop entire political ideologies to make sure we don't do that very thing. Isn't that amazing? Amer- Humans are an amazing species because that's exactly what we do. Uh, our friend Torben Holbe uh, from over in Germany has been joining us. Fantastic conversation. We really appreciate your time today. Uh, again, the suffering in Sri Lanka is horrible. Please make sure you keep up to date with what's going on with those folks. My friend, until we hear from you again, let folks know what you have going on, where they can follow you. We're going to link to your piece in town hall. Please read the whole thing in its entirety. We always tell folks, uh, but let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on until we talk to you again. Sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Yes. It's just Torben Halbe. <laughs> so, now that has been said so often, you can actually, uh, Go for that. So my name is just Torben Halbe, without without any spaces or anything. Um, and I, I recently joined a think tank in Berlin, which is called Ego Institute. You know, we want to go for the individualism. So it's quite new still, but the address is ego-institute.org. As of now, it's all still in German, but you can follow us there, sign up for the newspaper, and we are in the progress of translating it. It's just a very young thing yep and we can always google translate until then uh torben my friend very much appreciate your time uh thank you so much for joining us i look forward to talking to you again in the future best of luck with the new think tank and we'll speak again real soon my friend thank you for your time same thank you and goodbye thank you sir Our buddy Eric Garcia wrote a book on autism so good. It is Mrs. Donaldson approved. That'd be my mother, longtime special education teacher. Um, I actually want to start right there and talking a little bit about autism, though, because you were tweeting about it. And the reason I bring this up is because people are getting more open about talking about it for good, bad and indifferent. But we'll talk about that in just a second. We're starting to get politicians being open about this. We're getting sports yeah. figures that are open about this. We're getting stars to be more open about this. We just talked mental health with our friend, Dr. Katie Gordon, and she talked about this as like, yeah, people kind of blow it off, but this is important stuff when people just start openly talking about it. Now that we're getting them into the political realm, 
uh, and we can talk about uh, New York 10 and things like this. How do we need to approach it as a society and as people that comment on it? Because one of the things we bash about is the portrayals in media and in movies. Politicians are portraying it, too. And I don't mean that in a performative manner. I just mean they're they're avatars and standard bearers for this stuff. Yes. How should we be approaching and covering them? Should we treat it any different? Should we treat it different? Because as you're a journalist, first and foremost, you know, there's not a style book guide to this stuff. We're writing there it is, as we go. So how do we deal with it? There is, you're right. There is a, there are some style book guides so like the ASU's National Disabil- uh, Center on Disability Journalism has a pretty good style book. But even then, there's still some things like, you know, how do we, the perfect example that I, that I, that I often use is, do you use person person with autism or autistic person, uh, person first versus identity first language, um, and the the answer is you know you ask um, you ask people what they what they say what they what they prefer uh, that that's very important but I, but I think also it's one of those things where um, you know the the AP style book had a real uh, had a real row because there was a big question of how do you, you know they said you know use person-first language, well, that works for people with Down syndrome and that works for people with cerebral palsy and people with intellectual disabilities. But other people, you know, other people with groups of disability, like autistic people, blind people, deaf people, they, some of them prefer, you know, identity-first language. So I think it's real, I think it's, I think as you said, this is really difficult. And I think uh, to, to, I think it's difficult to shoehorn it into the older prescribed ideas of what journal, about how to write these things. And I think it, it, a lot of it depends on what people themselves say. One of the things that I was really adamant about when I was writing my book was asking, how do you want to be, how do you want to be referred? Do you want to be referred to as a person with autism? Do you want to be referred to as an autistic person? Uh, and, and, that, and that's going to, that's going to be something that I think journalists are going to have to uh, adapt to. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in the same way. I think so, you know, in um, in New York 10, for example, so today there's going to be a primary uh, with Yuli New, who's running to, if she wins her primary, she'd be the, likely the first openly autistic member of Congress. And one of the things that I think that's interesting is that she said, you know, you know, for the longest time we've talked about, you know, I think a lot of news outlets say, oh, people don't let their disability define them. Whereas she said, you know, it's de- very much shaped how she is. So that's a question about how do we use that language and how do we say like, uh, you know, if people's disability defines them, we should say like, I think that leads to the question without being rude. And that's a whole other thing. It's like, how does being a person with a disability shape you? How does it inform you? How does it inform you as a policymaker? You know, it's about, you know, and obviously this is all dependent on how comfortable they are talking about it. So this is a real, these are going to be some real questions that I, that I don't have a real clear answer to, but I'm still learning and I'm trying to figure it out as well. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because every case of autism or every case of Down syndrome or every case of whatever, pick your developmental disability sort of thing or uh, whatever somebody's struggling with, they're all different and they affect everybody a little bit differently. This isn't like um, some other things where you can just take a broad brush. So do we need the good congressman TV series to go with the good lawyer and the good doctor? That's the question (laughs) now, because that's because, you know, let's be honest, our politicians are TV characters now. Yes, they are. They are. So I'm I'm being a little facetious there, but that's probably what somebody's going to come up with next. Is like, oh, well, we need to have the good president or the good. And I'm not knocking it because I actually like the good doctor. I think it's a good show. Yeah. But I'm not sure that that's going to be a scalable thing where we need to do it four, five, six times. You were tweeting about this. I'll ask you because you're in that community. I'm not. 
how does it land with you with portrayals like that? Because I, I understand it's artistic, so it's subjective. Yeah, yeah. Is it in the line of, oh, they're covering this good or they're exploiting it? That's a fine line. Where does it fall? It is a you? very fine line. I think the, the thing that I've always said is that, so as far as I can tell when I was running the book, I tried to see if they had any autistic advisors. They do have some people with disabilities as advisors, but not specifically autistic. I've seen, so you know, I, I've watched a few episodes of it. I haven't, like, you know, it's not the, you know, it gets some things right. It gets some things wrong, I think. But I think more than anything, what I what I would like to see is <clears throat> more than just doing spinoffs of these shows. I think what I'd like to see is more stuff, more, more uh, material created by autistic creators. Or autistic screenwriters. I do know of some people in Los Angeles who do work in the who do work in the industry, and they really try hard to get their um, their material in front of an executive or in front of uh, in, in front of you know Netflix or HBO Max or whatever. And then you know forget the fact that a lot of these streaming services are cutting uh, right now. Uh, that's a whole other issue. But I think that one of the things that's difficult is creating an incentive for uh, for the entertainment industry to pick these things up and pick them up when they're created by people with disabilities. One of the, or when they're even in front of the camera, I think, you know, we saw this a little bit with CODA when it won the Academy Award for best picture. That was good, you know, uh, and from what I understand people, I know people in the deaf community have mixed opinions about it, but they were happy that it got the funding. It got the promotion from Apple. It got the promotion. It got like, it had a whole PR campaign what it's going to need, what what this will need, what I think, it's not just about picking up these shows. It's about will networks or will, you know, production companies, will they put the full force of their, you know, PR and promotion machine into promoting this and saying that this is content worth watching. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. you do with a reality show like love on the spectrum because i know the the family household out on the other day and i was i was just watching i was walking back and forth because i have an open house if this is just my opinion i'm not knocking anybody involved it just feels intrusive to me it, stuff yeah. like that because it's interpersonal relationships i get it it's like oh they can have love like look i'm all for it again my mom was a special ed teacher i grew up surrounded by kids with what we now call autism they didn't know that back in the 80s yeah. so much uh kids with down syndrome and you got to understand how special education worked back then. My mom would have these kids in high school level for seven, eight, nine years usually. So yes. you really developed a relationship with these, you know, the Shane Cogers of the world who I can still hear his voice to this day, who's still alive, by the way, doing well. It feels invasive to me because I grew up in around those kinds of folks and I knew them and they were my friends and I, you know, I love them and I care about them. 
that that kind of stuff feels intrusive to me. I understand you want to portray them as just hey, they're they're doing these normal it things feels like very falling in love. Yeah, it, it's it's it that one bothers me. How does it hit you? Yes, yeah, so I'm not watched, singling it out. I'm just saying. I, mean, I'm not, I don't want to single it out. I don't want to, you know. So I watched the Australian version. I still need to watch the American version. That's what they had I, on last night. The Aussie. So the uh, yeah, the Aussie one. From what I understand, the American one is is better. Uh, from you know, you know, from what people I know and pe- autistic people who I know have watched and say that one, the American version is better. Um, the Aussie one felt really. I watched like five episodes of it, and it came out when out toward the end of me writing my book. And it felt really, I, I got the same feeling. You did. It, it felt real. I got really clammy watching it. It felt really like so, some of the, some of the couples are, and some of the people on that show are great. I don't want to knock them, you know, good for them. And, and I was really happy for them. Others, it just felt really like, I felt like, as, as you said, I felt like I was invading their privacy almost. And I was almost like, because it's one thing to give your consent because, you know, obviously all these people had to give their consent. But I don't know how I feel about like you can't once you give once you sign that waiver, the the production companies get licensed to do whatever they to clip and to, to clip and choose whatever they want, and so just giving a license of consent isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean that it's all honky dory, and I and there there were parts of it that I really just felt like should I be watching this. Is it appropriate? And not like it's explicit or anything like that, but it's just like it felt like there was some stuff that I wouldn't like about my life being broadcast. I don't know if I feel comfortable with with, with that. That's just me. That's my argument against reality TV in general, by the way. So it, it's not me being inconsistent just because yes. it's folks with on the autism spectrum. It's like, look, you know my you know my rule on Twitter about reality TV. Uh, those folks signed a contract, so they signed up for it. But that's part of what bothers me here. Yes. When you start getting into these communities and I don't want to denigrate anybody, I really don't. So no, I, I like I, I'm not sure we should really be pushing that kind of contracts on folks in that community in the first place, just as a general rule. But that's just me. That is so I'll say this. When I was writing my book, um, I went to Marshall University in, in West Virginia and there were college students. And one of the things that I did is I said, I'm going to have you sign a waiver say you're okay with this. The thing that I, the thing that I felt was that I felt that what I did is I, I was very upfront with them. I said, I'm autistic. uh, And I want to make sure that I get this right. So if I have any questions, I'll reach out to you because I didn't want to do that. And there were, there was, and there was another one, another time there was another person who I interviewed, not at Marshall, but somewhere else, a really important story that I really wanted to include in the book. But there was just something about the way, about the stuff that he told me about his personal life. And I just felt really, really like I made this phone call literally like days before I turned in the manuscript. And I said, I want to make sure you're okay with this because you have to live with this. I don't. And then he said, no, can you please take it out? And it sucked because I thought that his stuff was really important. But at the end of the day, he has to live with it. I don't. And I think that the difference is the difference is who's behind the camera. If you have people who've been through similar experiences or if you have autistic people who are advising or producing or things like that, that might lead to more sensitivity and recognition about like what's appropriate and what's not appropriate to show. And I think that that is where I feel kind of uncomfortable is that because if you don't have that cultural knowledge, 
then you might not know what's appropriate to include and what's not appropriate to. That's just my. That's just me. That's just me. It's one guy's opinion. I'm not saying you know. I'm not saying that my word is gospel. I, th- I think it's a tough subject. One more thing on this autism stuff, because I thought we were done with this, but apparently not. They're going to keep going through it for folks that don't know, because I'm old enough to remember when we did this in the early 2000s, the late 90s, especially in the early 2000s. Right when the Internet came along, of course, that's when this yes. mess started. We've got to untangle autism from this vaccine mess. Yes, we've just got to because we're going to we're going to get people killed with this. Nonsense. Gonna- I, I, I usually try to be nonsense, but I've just had it with this. I, I've lost my patience now that we're seeing polio in New York. We uh, One of the greatest achievements in human history, literally one yes. of the greatest achievements in human history was defeating polio. Coming yes. up with the vaccine, and it was a mess. They accidentally put the live virus in. Eisenhower had to go on TV, one of the first TV addresses, and be like, no, the vaccine's safe. People don't understand what an achievement it was. We defeated polio. It was gone. And yes. now it's back out of our own ignorance, and we're using autism as an excuse to do it. I- I have no patience for this. You I speak am, on it. <laughs> if you, if, how, do you, how do you think I feel? <laughs> um, I am just so livid because th- 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 this, is, this, this, this is the real. Okay, now you got me on my soapbox. This is the reason why I'm so, why it gets me so upset. It's because it treats autism as a problem and it treats autistic people as a problem to be fixed. And then what it does is it puts the blame on parents because what it says is it's your fault your child is autistic because you got got your kid the shots they put then place the blame on the doctors and we spend all this time blaming everybody for the kid being autistic when that does nothing to help autistic people in school that does nothing we're not spending we still do not have enough funding for home care there, there, there was this great series of articles i'm sure you saw me tweeting about it in the houston chronicle about the wait lists in texas for uh autistic parent for, for autistic kids waiting to get their services through medicaid it does nothing uh to ameliorate the fact that people on ssi have to live in poverty it does we by focusing on this we're getting people killed because we're not focusing on polio and we are not actually focusing on autistic people's lives. And then we are, <clears throat> this is just, this is just, a, again, now you got me all hopped up. Um, it makes me mad because I think about this one kid I interviewed, uh, now they're an adult, so I don't want to call them a kid, but they're, you know, uh, their name's Aaron Starr. Their mom uh, believed the horse hockey about vaccines and autism. And their mom blamed themselves. Right. And instead of spending time focusing on how to help their kid live a fulfilling life, helping them make sure that they that they graduate from college and live a good life, all that, we spent all they spent all this time blaming themselves. It is just the most infuriating thing. And I, I, I you know, I it makes lasers shoot out of my eyes. So anyway, rant over. No, but that's why I think people need to hear the rant. Because what happens is parents are susceptible. Parenting advice is a multi-billion dollar industry in America. It is. You've worked in media for a while now. They openly talk like, what are we going to do with the mom demographic? That's a thing in media. It's absolutely a thing. 
and to use it exploitively towards a group of people who have something that they didn't ask for. It's something that nature put in them. Yes. And to treat it like it's this disease to cure instead of something that we should be helping these people live with and become their best. I start thinking about you. You hit on one of my pet peeves right there. You talked about, you know, the SSI payments. You know, on one hand, we take away things like the sheltered workshop and giving them job skills. And on the other hand, we tell them like, oh, you can't work because you won't have your benefits anymore if you make money. This kind of double speak stuff. It all starts going together. It's like, oh, well, you this vaccine causes autism. Well, autism is this that, and the other. Oh, you can't work. We'll put you on government benefits, but we're not going to give you enough benefit. There's a lot of just double speak when it comes to autism and disabilities in general in America. Yes. We've got to find some way to cut through the double speak. And some of it's because government bureaucracy that's built into the system. Yeah, I get yeah, that. yeah, exactly. But at some point, and that's why I loved your book so much, you just go talk to the people. You skip all the double speak. Yeah. And that's really the core of your and I will pitch your book because it's that good, not just because you're Thank a friend. You. That's the double speak that really hurts people that are trying to live with disabilities instead of giving them a hand up. You're giving them a hand up while you're holding them on the top of the head at the same time. And that's yeah. just infuriating. That is, yeah, it is. The, the thing that I say a lot of times is that we, is that I cannot imagine, you know, so like I grew up in the 1990s when there wasn't a, when in some ways it was, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times because like it was great. It was bad because there was, I, I, I feel for my mom in a lot of ways because there just wasn't a lot of information at the time. But on the other hand, I'm also kind of grateful that we didn't have the internet because that means that my mom wasn't, uh, subjected to a lot of quackery. I think it's, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of term when I say that. And as a result, I think, it, so like, I don't envy any parent as soon as they get the, the autism diagnosis for their kid. I don't because they, because immediately, immediately they are subjected to a, to a deluge of misinformation and, um, and the right information wrong, and, and it's hard. I don't blame them for like not knowing what the right stuff to do is. I mean, I think you saw. I don't know if you saw that that stat news piece about like how a lot of private equity companies are getting involved in um, ABA, and like that's another thing because ne- because now you have people are making money off something, and there's an incentive to shoot to pressure parents into doing that. So there is so there is so much misinformation and it is it is it is endlessly frustrating because it doesn't actually address what they need you know they they you, you know just, just last month i was at a conference with uh, a bunch of non-speaking autistic people and their stories were all the same which was for the longest time they went through a bunch of different treatments a lot of different you know quote unquote cures or a lot of different therapies and it wasn't until they got to you know speech speech communication or keypads or what ha- or what have you that they decide that you know their lives overnight got better and but but you know it shouldn't take going through all those hoops to finally have the 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 Paul going through the, de- the desert in Damascus moment you know yeah and it's it's amazing that the technology is running so far ahead of the policy. We talked about this when we did the long form podcast, yes, one did. of the most listened ones we've ever had, by the way, well done on that. But that's because people want good information. They really do want the good information on this they stuff do. if you get it out there. But this is the thing is the technology has run so far ahead and especially autism stuff, both uh, policy wise and educational. We talked about it before. It really was organic and parent driven because they just didn't have anywhere else to go. 
Yes. I, our, our country deserves the government it gets, but these folks deserve a much better government than they're getting. And I'll just kind of leave yeah. it at that to end the rant on it. Eric Garcia, this is fantastic stuff. I could talk to you all day. That's why we have you back more and more. You do great work, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you. Pitch the book. We're going to link to it. I'm going to send some stuff out on the book. Oh, we are not broken. He's going to hold it up because he knows how to do a segment because he's a media professional. Look at that. Yeah. There you go. If it you're watching now, on the YouTube. Go ahead, sir. Is, we're not broken. Change the autism conversation. It is now officially out on paperback. It has a new afterword about vaccines, stuff we were talking about, about the panic about it, how the, va- how the autism vaccine panic gave rise to the coronavirus vaccine panic, uh, and so much more. It is uh, it is now available wherever you can get fine books, uh, and uh, and I always love coming back here because you actually know what you're talking about. You actually and you actually you actually take the time to do the work. So I always love I always love coming on here. I appreciate that. You steer me some other folks too, which I really appreciate. Um, love talking to you, my friend. The book is important. Uh, maybe the sequel on vaccines might want to kick that idea around. That'll sell to somebody. <laughs> Um, my friend, I appreciate you as a friend. I really appreciate the work you do. We'll do this again real, real soon, my friend. Eric Garcia, you're great, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, let's go back overseas. Let's continue to talk about this energy crisis because it is worldwide, global, and Germany's right in the center of it for a whole lot of reasons. We're going to talk to Felix Hassa about right now. He joins us from Berlin. Felix, thank you so much for the time, my friend. Good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thrilled to have you. Always enjoy hearing that German accent from having lived over there. I miss the place. Uh, y'all got some drama on the energy front. Let's start big picture because we've talked about um, we're going to talk about nuclear. We've talked about the gas exports. We know about Russia and Ukraine and Putin putting the screws to Germany and the rest of the EU. We know all that. Let's back up, though, because part of the puzzle that the Western media and Western audience may not know is, you know, one of our founding principles on our program is things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. So a lot of folks on the outside are going, why did Germany let themselves get in this position with drawing down their nuclear power, with making themselves so dependent on Russian gas and other energy sources. Give us that piece of it, the background of this that folks may not know that led up to the current crisis as far as Germany and the EU is concerned. Well, we have to go back very far in time, actually, uh, until the 1970s and 80s um, to explain why Germany quit using nuclear power. Back in in those days, there was a um, large anti-nuclear movement, which was mainly fueled by 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 fear and under the pressure of the Cold War. Um, so they, they basically um, equated the civil use of nuclear power with nuclear bombs. And after seeing um, the damage that nuclear bombs can do, um, they they basically were, were afraid. And the problem with that movement was that it's very influential. Um, in 19 in the 1970s they had a lot of decentral act uh, like decentral groups uh, decentralized groups which were organizing their resistance towards the multiple nuclear power plants within Germany. And in 1980, our Green Party was founded, which was basically um, just those those groups coming together. 
So right now we have a party which is in parliament and very, very influential in German culture, um, which has as their founding story, as, uh, you know, as, as this myth that they base all the policy on, that they are anti-nuclear. And I alluded to that they were, um, they're very influential in, uh, in politics and parliament, but also in media, mainly in the, the public broadcasting, which we have right now, and um, in, almost in any um, facet of a society. Now, you mentioned the Green Party, for lack of a better terminology. We've seen the Green Parties in other countries in Europe start to kind of turn around on this a little bit. Belgium's in particular, the Holland, uh, the Netherlands, the Green Party there. They're starting to kind of move away from that a little bit and go, okay, we want to be environmentally friendly. Maybe we can work this out with the nuclear folks a little bit. We're seeing some changes in some other places. Are we seeing that with the Green Party in Germany, though? We do not. I think there was one week uh, where they contemplated when they were basically in panic, um, thinking about, all right, we are in a, we are an energy crunch right now. Um, are we going to abandon our principle of being anti-nuclear? And that discussion was pretty short-lived in the party itself because they um, they came together and said, "We're the Greens. We cannot we cannot let that happen. This is um, we would abandon um, a large share of our of our core voter." Uh, base. So we cannot let that happen. Now, the the Western perception of Germany, of course, longtime allies of America, friends of America, the perception is everybody thinks of the German people as being practical. Of course, the manufacturing base, very industrial, very um, forward thinking and how to get things done. That sort of a stereotype of the German people. Why is it nuclear is such a bugaboo to the to the folks, especially the Green Party folks? You mentioned it a little bit, the thing from the 70s, but we're two generations from that. Is it just repeated so much that people believe it? Or is it just ingrained in folks? Or is there something in this new wave of these new Green Party? The pe I'm talking to people like 20 to 40, the newer generation of them. Is it just habit? Or is it something else going on that we're not really aware of? I would say on one hand, it's habit. On one hand, it's definitely habit. Um, over over this over those you know years, when we, like, just for context, we phased out our nuclear, um, we made the decision to phase out our nuclear plans um, in 2011. So up until this point, nuclear power was running uh, very smoothly and nobody really worried about it. Um, we did that under the impression of Fukushima, but under the surface, the anti-nuclear and the, or the nuclear skepticism had been growing since the 70s and 80s. And you said that Germany is always seen as this very efficient, non-emotional uh, approach to you know doing doing business and doing industry and producing. However, there's there's a slight caveat to that. I think that um, after after the Second World War, we never really had any um, drastic disruptive innovation coming up. Basically, also not even like going back even even um, earlier than that. So the the industriousness that germany is, is is known for is a thing of the past and right now we're we're basically um having this dreamer-like attitude that we are still a rich country that we are basically um you know just feeding off of our of the innovation that we did roughly 100 years ago and when you're in a country which does not realize why it is rich um, then you end up with with policies which um, basically 
go against what made us rich, for example, cheap energy, and that, you know, nuclear comes with that. This is interesting, though, because um, maybe this is one of those things where we talk about maybe the culture is dictating the politics more than the other way around. We're going to talk about the policy side of this and what you wrote about in just a minute. But talk about the generational change, because I think I think you're hitting on something important here because you talked about disruption. Well, the last real big disruption in Germany before this current crisis was reunification, which was a massive economic change. They had to absorb the eastern Germans. Um, that was the same time the U.S. did massive drawdowns, which changed their economic situation. That was a big period of change in Germany. But we're too, we're over a generation away from that now. So this new generation is probably not really thinking of those things. They really haven't had a major economic disruption. The EU's ran pretty smoothly. Until this Putin invading Ukraine thing, they really kind of had a bit of a bubble of of good times and good economy and things going well. Is that part of the problem here is that culturally, this is kind of the first crisis for the current generation of a whole lot of Germans and a lot of the EU in general. I always say that Germany is too rich. Germany is too rich to appreciate freedom and prosperity and innovation. Um, right now, we, we are basically um, living off the, uh, you know, the fruits of our, our of previous of previous decades and even centuries. Um, we have had high energy prices. Um, but we've been rich enough to basically not notice them. Obviously, the lower classes in our society have been have been struggling under the highest energy prices which are in the world right now. Um, but the the middle classes and the upper middle classes who are overly represented in media and in culture have not felt the pain. And now this has changed, right? This has changed um, since um, since the invasion of Ukraine. And since the um, ru uh, the Russian gas is likely to be uh, not flowing next next winter, yeah, and this is the core of this problem: is winter's coming, and there's nothing yes. you're going to do to stop winter from coming. Are people cognizant of that? Is there a sense of urgency to do something about any of this? Now, we've seen a little bit of movement on the nuclear front. They've talked about you know not shutting down what they haven't shut down yet, that sort of thing. But really, you talked about this. This is we're dealing with policy that was set in 2011. So, you know, almost 10, 11, 12 years ago now. Is there really that much they can do at this late hour to slam the brakes on this thing? So there is a sense of urgency within the population. Um, the amount of firewood that has been stolen from the forests is going is going up. Um, the, the prices, the prices of um, of. I would say, like you know, the prices of gas, the prices of 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 oil is is going up because people are afraid that they cannot heat their homes in the winter. So within the population, there is a strong sense of urgency, and this is usually um, this is not reflected in the urgency of, for example, that the Greens feel right now. Um, some other parties, which are in the in the governing coalition, like the SPD and the FDP. Um, they kind of voice a sense of urgency there, but they are in a coalition with the Greens together. Um, so I, I guess they would have, they would be more vocal if they weren't, if they weren't in the coalition. 
Yeah. And for the American audience and the international audience that aren't familiar with parliamentarian politics, uh, Olaf Schultz's ruling coalition, they call it the traffic signal coalition, uh, green, yellow, red. Just kind of break that down for a second, because that's the current ruling party. It's a brand new ruling party after a long tenure of Angela Merkel. Say whatever you want, but it was stable for a long, long time. This is a lot of new on top of everything else. And that's part of the story as well, isn't it? Yes, for sure. For sure. It has been. It's a very uh, novel way of doing politics in Germany. It's a, first and foremost, it's a it's a three party coalition, which is uh, which is new on the federal level. Um, we do have the, um, the the majority within that coalition has is the SPD, which is the Social Democrats. Um, those have been um, usually they they have been actually running on on the ticket that nothing really changed for some for some reason they managed uh, to be associated with a continuity. That was actually appreciated under uh, under the Merkel government. So Olaf Scholz was a part of that um, too for a long time, and he managed to just have this this sense of of continuity. And this is why he became the chancellor. The other parties, and there are the Greens and the classical liberal, like the Liberal Democrats. Um, coming to the Greens, they are. Um, they are new to government. They had been in government uh, when when Gerhard Schröder, or or the, the chancellor before Merkel was in uh, was in uh, power, and they were um, polling very well before the election, and there were some even some rumors that they could actually um, that the chancellor could be from the Green Party. That didn't materialize because uh, Scholz was had a pretty good um, had a pretty good last couple of weeks before the election, but the Greens have never been this strong and influential uh, in, in, in German politics. And those those parties are, um, I would say, could be considered left-wing. And then you have the odd party in that coalition, which are, which are the classical liberals, the, the free Democrats, and uh, those represent more of a centrist, of a centrist, of a centrist, um, poli uh, centrist politics, they yeah they have their classical liberal values um however they find it very very tough against those two left parties to actually um make a mark on 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 policy this is the current situation which we're having yeah uh, we're talking to our friend Felix Hasse. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about the German politics. We're going to talk about uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, the Scholz machine. We're going to get into why he's called that and the policy. Also get back to his piece he wrote. We're going to get into some of the numbers, nuclear by the numbers. Why was it a public panic that put this whole thing together, what they're going to do about it? Talking more about nuclear energy with our friend over in Germany. Hertel continues right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Felix Haas joining us from over in Berlin, talking a little energy, talking some nuclear. Um, we're talking about policy and politics and culture all colliding when it comes to nuclear. Anytime you have those three together, you need to go to leadership. The current leadership and Chancellor of Germany is Olaf Scholz. We talked about his party, but let's talk about the man for a minute. 
again, you know, he's good, bad, or indifferent, whatever you thought of Angela Merkel. She'd been there a long time. They had a lot of stability. They had a lot of economic success. She was a major player on the world stage, especially when it came to Russia and her evolution about Russia um, over the years. He's an unknown quality to a lot of people. We've got some book on him now. He's been in power for a couple of months. What are people thinking about Olaf Scholz when it comes to this energy crisis? In terms of style, he basically continues the style of Angela Merkel. Um, the, Angela Merkel has been successful in, in ruling Germany, or had been successful in ruling Germany for such a long time, by having a style which basically focuses on not rocking the boat, not doing any major um, reforms which would be needed, and basically governing based on polls. So try to try to do not what is necessary, but what is right now in this moment um, politically, um, politically like like which like the opportunity is there and which people appreciate in this particular moment. So Olaf Scholz has the same has the same style. However, he does not have. Um, there is no emotional connection like we had with Merkel. He's a very, um, he's a very, you know, bland character, and he doesn't get he doesn't get the 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 emotion that we had to uh, Mutti Merkel, which means mother mother Merkel, which some some Germans called her. So that's that's his this government style. He does not rock the boat, and this particular. Um, style gets very interesting if you are in a coalition with two other parties, because then you um, do not exactly pick sides when um, some coalition parties have their their pet projects, their their you know their topics. Um, for example, the Greens um, having having the nuclear uh, the topic of nuclear power. Um, there he doesn't pick any sides and he just lets them run with it. This is the current situation of leadership in regards to nuclear. Now, you've got people, like you mentioned and alluded to before, some of these other parties, this is a coalition government, they're openly talking about if this winter gets ugly, if the crisis gets worse, he's going to have problems with his coalition. What's he saying? What's he pitching the German people right now? Because they're looking at the calendar. We're deep into August here. It's getting cold up there. You know, those cold, rainy German winters are no joke. I've been through them. What's he telling the people? What's the pitch to the people who are concerned about this issue right now? The interesting fact is that Scholz doesn't pitch anything. Uh, Scholz basically uh, lets his, like, that's the minister's uh, govern, which is the minister of economy, the minister of finance, and the minister of ecology. Um, for those, for those, he just, you know, he just lets them um, fight it out uh, amongst themselves. The interesting thing is that the minister of finance is from the um, Free Democrats of the classical liberal party, and the Minister of Economy is of the um, is of the Green Party. So there is a there is a uh, a conflict which he basically just you know removes himself from and uh, lets them lets them fight it out. Yeah, that doesn't sound like leadership to me. But what do I know? Maybe he knows something about it. I don't know. Um, the other piece of this is always renewable energy. It ain't from lack of trying. Germany has spent enormous funds, enormous infrastructure, and they've been doing it for a long time. They were early adapters on it. I'm looking at the background on my computer screen right now. 
is a picture from, you know, 2008 that we took because we would drive up on the, the hills above where we lived in Schoenberg, Kugelberg, and it's just windmills as far as you can see on top of the hill. It's one of my favorite pictures. My daughter took it. That's the background of my computer I'm looking at now. That was a long time ago. They've been doing renewable energy for a long time. Has Germany got the investment back from that that they thought they would get? About, uh, about renewable energy. We have been doing large investments in solar and wind, um, and it's not for a lack of trying. Our basic enemy in German LNG policy is basic physics. Um, the, the problem with wind and solar is that there are times when the wind is not blowing and the sun's not shining. And while when the wind blows and the sun shines, we have, um, we have the energy from those sources, in the times when they, you know, when we do not have the energy, we have to rely on other sources. So actually, with the um, we started off with the intention of becoming more green and more nuclear. But our, for example, our carbon emissions are much higher than the, um, the surrounding countries because, quite frankly, we do not have as much nuclear in our energy mix. So we were um, for a long time living the dream. Um, in energy policy, and we we woke up roughly half a year ago. Yeah, abruptly. Thank you, Vladimir Putin. Um, I, I seem like I ask this question every time we talk about nuclear on the program with every guest on nuclear. I'm going to phrase it this way because you wrote about it in your piece. You talked about the Green Party's opposition. You wrote that it is largely white-collar opposition characterized by a lack of understanding of the energy demands of private enterprise and how increased energy prices affect working class people. Also, all this high tech stuff that Germany's trying to get in on, trying to be the leading edge on in Europe, massive outliers of power to to do things like that. Even in things like there was news today about the the semiconductor industry in Taiwan, how it's just massive power drains to do these sorts of things. Germany's going to need power if it's going to remain the economic engine of not just Germany, the entire EU relies on Germany. That's just the facts of it. How in the world are we going to have a conversation with those white collar folks in the Green Party like you talked about to breach the gap of like, hey, we have data. This nuclear energy is clean. If you care about the environment, nuclear energy is the best option to get the most power possible for the cleanest energy possible. But there just seems to be this force field around it where they don't want to hear it or we're not communicating it well enough, those of us that advocate for it. So this is the question I always ask every time we talk about energy. How do we change that? How do we get that conversation changed so that one side or the other starts meeting in the middle a little bit here. I think we have to start off by realizing that this white collar, um, the, the group of white collar people, this this so-called intelligentsia and mostly of civil servants who are very supportive of the Greens are in a minority. So what we first and foremost need is the majority to stand up and say, we we do not let you dictate our energy policy. That's the first thing that should happen. Um, the second thing is that they should get into a position where even they realize that energy is too expensive. And this will come in the next winter. I, I, I guarantee you the price increases are already very drastic and they're expected to be astronomical. So the, this is, this is what, what needs to, what needs to happen. And quite frankly, we need a lot of, um, change coming from, from society. We need to um point the finger exactly at who's responsible for this which is the 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 green the green mainstream currently and this is the only this is the only um, way by raising the societal pressure 
um, on how we can get out of this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Here's the tough question, and this is going to be some pronostication, so just do your best with it. But if this thing gets ugly, if Putin really does turn off all the gas like he's probably going to threaten to do because he's going to want concessions and he's going to want to put the pressure on Ukraine. If if this gets really ugly, when people get hurt and people get scared, they're not always rational. The German people, we know the policy. We know where the government stands. We know where the EU stands. We know where America and the allies stand. The German people, if they start really feeling the bite of this thing, what direction is that anger and frustration going to get aimed at? Is it going to be at Schultz? Is it going to be at Putin? Where is this going to land at? We're right now facing a problem that we are currently we're currently facing the consequences um, of the of the sanctions um, towards Russia, which I think are are right. We should have those sanctions, um, but the German the German public is already feeling um, sort of fatigue. They are fed up with the war and the support for Ukraine is actually um, sort of currently shrinking. So this is this is the, the first the first thing I, I see right now. Um, they are directing their anger towards the government and saying why why is this our war? And um, I could go into why this is and this should be um, you know a priority of Germany to have the Ukrainians win this war. But um, we lose sight of the fact that our government brought us in this situation in the first place and that the the war of Russia in Ukraine is only a contributing factor. So what it, it should be directed towards towards the people who are currently opposing nuclear power, but um, it's currently directed towards the people who still support the sanctions. And I think this is a this is a grave mistake. In order to, um, in order to, you know, I, I, I'm not expecting the the Germans to go out on the street in mass. This has just not been a German thing to do. Um, if it gets way worse, then um, then we might be surprised that they uh, go on the streets. But it's not exactly likely. Yeah, Felix Hassa. One last question on this front. Um, you talk about sound energy policy in your piece. This would require consistency. We've talked about how this has been going on since the 70s. It's kind of ingrained in German culture at this point. Is the big trap here going to be, well, if we just figure out this thing with Putin, all our problems are going to go away, and that's going to be the false hope because you're still going to have this underlying energy crisis underneath. Is there a little bit of a trap forming here? 100%. 100%. We are in the situation, not because of Putin, but because of the 
irrational fear and in a way the decadence of the last of the last governments and of our public um, we're here because we lost sight of why it is important to have clean and reliable and cheap energy and for and for the like for the politicians it's always very very easy to blame putin on this but energy energy prices were the highest uh in europe before the war started and before anyone could think of sanctions and um, decreases in the amount of gas delivered yeah felix haas it's universal it doesn't matter the country the language or the situation we tend to make our own messes and make sure we blame somebody else so we don't have to deal with it uh i'm sure our german friends are going to have that same problem with energy crisis because we're doing that within the states for ourselves right now felix haas a great information really appreciate it we'll have you back again until we see you again on Hertel. though let folks know where they can follow you what you have going on until they see and hear from you again my friend awesome um the easiest way to find me is on twitter but um, it's the it's the free Felix. That's my Twitter handle. But I like to direct you uh, to uh, my think tank. I, I recently found it, which is called the Ego Institute. Our website is ego-institute.org, and we are a think tank which gives people perspective on how they can live a freer life by doing easy steps and not rely on the government to make them more free. Because history has shown that this usually doesn't work out that way. And um, we try to give people some guidance on how to live a more free and flourishing life there. Yeah, we'll link to all that. We'll put all that in. His social media is on the screen if you're watching on the YouTube. And we will put all those in the show notes, including his piece in Sustainability Times on Nuclear. Make sure you read the whole thing for yourself. There's some links in there, too. You need to make sure you check out Make Up Your Own Mind. And we'll continue to talk about this issue because it ain't going away. And like the show's famous for saying, winter's coming, my friend. And this is going to get real, real dicey, I'm afraid. Uh, Felix Hosser, appreciate your time, my friend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, sir. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.